Because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life in your cold decking team beat cover boys. Because the house always wins. You play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. Been practicing that speech, haven't you? A little bit. I felt like I rushed it. Did I rush it? No, it was good. I liked it. Team beat, team beat thing was a bit harsh. Well, good evening and welcome, everyone. This is our 192nd take. I'm your host, Barry Duplessis, as always, live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studio of Euless, Texas. Pleased to join everyone tonight. We're going to have a little bit of fun tonight. We've already kicked things off with a blast. I'm so stoked for it to have these gentlemen on. But before we get to formal introductions, we do have to thank the people in the, of the show that make this show possible, of course. And that is our sponsors. Tonight's show is sponsored by Drew Estate. Drew Estate is about to make someone a whole lot richer. Have you joined the Drew Estate Bitcoin sweepstakes yet? If not, you have one last chance to check, one last chance to check it out. You do not want to miss out on this opportunity. It is going to be absolutely fantastic. You could absolutely positively win a full Bitcoin from Drew Estate. You don't want to miss out on this. Tune into the latest Freestyle Live which was actually coming on January in January. Stay tuned at their, on their Facebook page at Drew Estate, and you'll be able to, to attend that last event in January. In February, they will have one last Freestyle Live where a fan will actually be the lucky winner of a full Bitcoin, as well as plenty of her swag and opportunities to win. Drew Estate is really bringing it on this year to close out 2021 with a bang and open up 20, 2022, 2022 and making someone a whole lot richer. So fantastic news from Drew Estate. Check them out on their latest Freestyle Lives and tune in in January for a full Bitcoin sweepstakes reveal, unveiling, and winning opportunity in February. So welcome, everyone. I'm going to welcome in my, uh, my, my guests of honor today. We're going to talk a little bit about a movie uh, that is 20 years old this year. And uh, we do this a couple of times a year. And I'm pleased to welcome in um, these two fine gentlemen. Uh, first of all, uh, I will introduce our. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce the the regular who the who's become the regular on these these movie uh, takes with us. Well, uh, this is Mr. Sam Spencer of McAuliffe Cigar. Sam, how are you doing tonight? Bear, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show again. These these shows are a ton of fun. I can't wait. I'm excited too, and I'm really excited that uh, that. Um, we've, I finally finagled a way to get this next guest on our, on my show. And, uh, and all I had to do was just basically offer him an opportunity to where we wouldn't be talking about cigars for two hours. So I just kidding. He absolutely is a one huge cigar lover, former, uh, cigar company, founder, entrepreneur, author of two of my favorite personal favorite books. And we'll be talking about those here a little bit. Mr. Fred Rui, Fred, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. This is uh, this is gonna be a lot of fun. I, I mean, there's no any excuse to get me to talk about movies. I'm I'm in. I'm in. Actually, I wanted to shoot this in my office because my office is full of movie posters. That's what's on my walls of my office. But uh, I went outside because I wanted to smoke. <laughs> there you go. And and you 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 pulled out the part and everything, man. You got the you got the tux. You got the un yeah. You got the I, untied, I, the tie is I great. Mis totally misunderstood the uh, invite. I thought this was a dress up party. Uh, so um, yeah, a little awkward now. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, well, you know, I I just hope you were the groom, Fred. That's all I'm hoping. I for. I, I may uh, I may have a few more surprises. This may not be the only uh, Ocean's Eleven prop I brought to this outing. Oh, that's wonderful. 
I love it. What what are the posters uh, grace the office of Fred Rui? Um, so there, I used to collect a lot of movie posters, and and now unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I don't know how you look at. It, I I have too many to have on walls. Um, so most of them are just you know put away, preserved. But the big ones are uh, Goodfellas, um, Caddyshack, uh, Pulp Fiction, and Raiders of Lost Ark, and those are my four like pride and joys because they're all autographed by the entire cast, director, everybody else. Uh, so those are the four that are usually in my office. Uh, the next two would be the uh, Revenge of the Jedi, uh, which I got a hold of that back uh, before they changed the name. So they tried to destroy all the posters, but there's a couple posters that got through before it was turned to the change of the name Return of the Jedi before the release and all the promos went up. So I have a Revenge of the Jedi poster and then an original E.T. poster. Those are probably my favorites. Oh, and a, and a uh, Boris Vallejo original Chevy Chase Vacation one is probably a cool one, too. But uh, the rest of them, not so good, you know, just run of the bill ones. But those are my favorites. The Revenge of the Jedi. How did you just did you snag that from a collector? Like, how did you get a hold of one of those? No, actually, you know what? Believe it or not, that may be a, that may have been one of the first posters I ever had. And um, when I was a kid, I um, used to collect. I, I used to collect. I wasn't into the comics, although my, a lot of my friends were. But I did like the movie stuff. So I was. There was a comic store in Florida that had. No, I'm sorry, in San Francisco. They had a Revenge of the Jedi poster. It was up, you know, behind it on the wall for sale. Nobody could buy it. I mean, it was just stupid. And uh, somehow, I have no idea to this day how my parents found out about it. And they, I can't even imagine them going into the store, let alone putting two and two together. So on Christmas morning, I opened up, I unrolled a poster, and it was Stephen King's Christine. And like, I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's a nice movie. You know, I mean, it's, it wasn't a sought after one, but I'm like, that's kind of cool. And then I let that one go and to look at the one underneath because I knew there were two posters. And I remember just staring at it going, there's no friggin' way I have this poster. Uh, and, and so I got it from my parents. Oh, that's fantastic, man. That's great. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it, it's uh, I, I movies have always been movies have always been one of my things. I mean, ever since I was everything, ever since I was a child. And then I really got into it um, in college because I was a sports broadcasting major. Um, but it was attached to the radio TV film department of my, of my school of where Sam and I went to Sam and I went to TCU, uh, you know, a couple decades separated, but that's, that's another story. Uh, but the radio <laughs> TV film department was, had this really heavy emphasis on film and, and I'm, and I'm really grateful for it. It, I'm really grateful for it. Cause I learned a lot about, you know, what has become like just one of my favorite all-time hobbies. And just, I have an, I have a great appreciation for film, um, and uh and and what it all and all that it brings kind of to the table and just the whole uh, you know the whole medium as it were so it's 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 really great and so tonight we get to explore uh we get to explore uh this uh, this film of mine is a favorite i kind of talked sam into it uh sam when you and i were talking originally earlier this year and we we're talking about uh, movies that were celebrating big anniversaries i was like hey man have you ever have you seen this and you had but uh, it took a little twisting of your arm, if I don't remember, if I remember correct correctly. Yeah, it did. I hadn't seen it in like five to six years. And I was like, you know what? Let me watch it. And then I'll let you know. So I went back, I watched it. I was like, Bear, we got to do the show. Um, this is like the most rewatchable movie ever, which we're going to get into later, I know. But I think I've seen the back half of this movie like 20 times because every time <laughs> I, TV, I turned it on and just started watching for whatever it was. 
it's it's like one of those ultimate rewatch films, which we're going to get into. But I want to I want to ask actually another polarizing question to kick off the show before we got into tonight's major point, which is uh, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. Is this. Is this the greatest remake of all time? And Fred, I'll let I'll let you kick it off. Is this the greatest remake of all time? Your opinion? Uh, no, I mean, no. I, I think that, um, you know, there, there's, I mean, it's, it's certainly on the list and, and I think it's only on the list because it's, you know, it's an ensemble cast, uh, you know, it was, it was much older. I mean, the original was what, 1960. Um, they, they, other than the fact that there is a group of people taking out a casino um, and, and, and it's the same character names, that's kind of where the parallels end. Um, we can talk about the difference between the, you know, between the original and that as far as, you know, the original uh, longer film, much more character development in a lot of ways, the story arcs. But no, when you start comparing it to movies like, you know, The Thing, uh, Casino Royale, uh, Heat. Uh, no, I don't think for me on remakes and I'd have to see a whole list of what movies were remake, uh, remade, but um, I'm not even sure it's on the top 20 for me as far as remakes are concerned. I'm not saying it's not a good film. I'm just saying when mm-hmm. you to compare it to the original it's like you know are you either you know when you look at remakes you're like are you remaking the original film or are you doing an extension of it or your interpretation of it this is a remake of the original film with obviously their own slant and and updating everything but no i I don't even think it would be a top 20 remake for me but then again i don't know i can't think of 20 remakes either so maybe it's in by default (laughs) sam what about what about you your opinion is this the greatest remake ever of movies I've seen, I have to say yes, because I mean, I haven't seen like the original Casino Royale. I haven't seen that movie, but the movies I've seen, I'm going to say yes, just because I'm looking through a list right now of best remade movies ever, and I can't find one that's better than this movie. So I'm, I'm going to say yes by default, because I okay, can't- wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, does your, does your list have Scarface on it? Because I'm pulling up a list right now. Scarface is on that list. No, I mean, come on. My list is yeah, not- and that's that's completely different. So, I mean, I, I mean, I really like your point here, Fred, because this this while again similar character names and everything like that, they, they, and that's the that's the ultimate debate, right? When I threw this question on Facebook a couple months ago, um, to just kind of garner you know garner our opinions and interest in it, I I found that most people were like, oh, the original, the original, the original. Like our good friend, you know, Mr. William Cooper is all about the original, and I'm like, there and. Fred, you and I, we were talking about this earlier. We've had that argument with him. It's they're they're different films. Like they share different, they share same character names uh, in in some lines, but they're, they're completely different in the original oceans 11. Just, just go and create, just when you want to hear some craziness here, it's your 50 minute, you're 55 minutes in before you hear anything talking about the heist. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I was saying about the story arc of the characters. You never get to the heist in the beginning. And then, by the way, the en- spoiler alert, the endings are completely different. I mean, completely yeah. different. So, oh, yeah. I mean, the, and, and you can have an interpretive ending and say, hey, we're doing a remake and we're going to have a slight twist. They're completely different endings. So I never saw the original Heat. And Heat's like one of the all-time like rewatchables. Right, like rewatchable, rewatchable. Michael Mann's interpretation, nineteen ninety-five. What, what? When was the original? I mean, Fred, do you even know? Or I'd have to look up the date. I don't. Yeah. No, no, I'd have to look up the date on the original. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here while you're, you you got talk amongst yourselves. 
Well, the Scar, yeah, Scarface is on a, on the list, which yeah, the completely different films, completely different characters. But here's one that I actually enjoy both. Um, I mean, I grew up watching this film because I grew up watching westerns with my dad, as a lot of our audience knows from previous episodes like these. I mean, I watched every single John Wayne, with the exception of the Cowboys. I wasn't allowed to watch that until I was until I was in high school. That was a great watershed moment for me and my father watching John Wayne's The Cowboys. But The Magnificent Seven, what a great remake that was with Denzel Washington a few years ago. Uh, I really enjoyed the original uh, and actually mm-hmm. the remake uh, again. But here's the thing. Same concepts, but different characters. Like, yeah, you know, and, Den- yeah. You know, and- and, that, and I think that's a point, you know, the genre and so everything else changes and the update, are you trying to do it? Um, I just looked it up. So the original Scarface is 1932. I mean, we're, we're, right. we're totally different worlds as far as all the hot buttons and stuff like that. Um, I mean, 32, you're only what, you're only two years past what the first Academy Awards or whatever it is. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, again, I mean, I, and we had this on Facebook, you know, with Coop and everybody else. I mean, they're different films. They're different yeah. films. I mean, you know, filmmaking the number of cuts, how long the scenes are now versus how long they were there and stuff like that. Very, very different. Um, They weren't as quick to leave something on the cutting room floor as they are now because I'm like, hey, we got to move on with the scene. Right. So here's here's a question that I want to, but we were talking about, we were talking about generations here, uh, you know, before the the show and everything. And so, you know, Fred, uh, I'm I'm kind of in the middle. Fred, you're a little bit older than me. Uh, I'm a little bit older than Sam. Um, But like there's this this interesting thing. So I was like looking at it, like uh, you know, because I was watch I've watched a lot of films from my youth, even my youth. Uh, Sam, what what about from your youth? Uh, here's the question: like movies from my youth were automatically like if they weren't animated, they were automatically two hours, two hours and twenty minutes. But now it's like it's like the hour 45 mark is pretty much the, the benchmark. I mean, would you agree or disagree? What, what's the difference between your youth and today? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It's they've gotten shorter. I mean, I also grew up where I thought the Lord of the Rings was the greatest thing in the world. So those are three and a half hours. Right. Right. Yeah. No, sure. Yeah. The out, right. Peter Jackson's the outlier. So. Right. Exactly. But I, with the exception of like maybe Marvel with some of the Avengers movies being crazy right. long, the stuff movies coming out now aren't super long. Like, um, like Fred, so you were talking about like your youth and stuff, which was like this, this, the star, War, the original, the episodes of star Wars, right? Yeah. That's, that was sure. kind of, you know, sure. those yeah. were two hour, 20 minute range, right? Two hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think they're quite that long, but they're a little bit longer. I mean, you know, even the, even the last James Bond movie clocked in real heavy. Um, so, and, and I look, I don't think that audiences today necessarily have a problem with a longer film. Uh, I think Lord of the Rings is a very good example of that, but it better be a really good story. Uh, I saw the James Bond movie when it came out and I mean, look, I cringe when I'm like, if, if I'm going to go to the movie theater, which is rare, it's gotta be a, a movie that either a, I'm not waiting for it to come out on another source or B, I want to see it on the big screen. And so when I see a format that long, I kind of cringe. Now the whole new lounge seating, comfortable chairs and theaters certainly helps that scenario. But um, I went into that thinking, oh man, this could be really long. I didn't mind it on the James Bond movie. It's just, it's just, right. a, it's a slow tell of a story, but it, it kept the pace was very good. Uh, same thing with all Lord of the Rings movies. I think that they're, you know, it's a good storyline. Um, you know, this, this movie has two components for me, which why, 
I'm okay with it running longer in the original versus now. And I think this movie could have went longer if they'd had the scenes right to it also with a little bit more backstory on the characters, the way they did on the original and things like that. For me, what I love about this movie, and I know we're going to talk about standing the test of time. I will always go for a solid ensemble cast, which by the way, typically doesn't work. They don't typically pull it off. Right. Even though you look at the cast going, man, it's a great cast movie sucked. And then two, I love any movie about a con. Whether you're talking about The Sting or Ocean's Eleven, I like any movie about a con and a twist and things like that. It's, I, I, I'm, I'm with you 100%, Fred. I think that's, I, I think that's what makes this, even the story and the characters within it, make it really intriguing. Because um, we'll talk a little bit about the correlation between the original and this one and the endings and and why that plays a part in what you just kind of said. So, so let's, let's kick things off. Let's get into tonight's major point. Obviously we're here to talk about the 20th anniversary of uh, one of the great remakes, one of the great rewatches in Ocean's 11, uh, the 2001 version. So power of the P tonight's major point is always brought to you by protocol cigars. The people who know everything about a lifetime of service protocol cigars is more than just pool parties and good times. Well, Maybe it is, but behind the fun, (laughs) behind that fun is a motivation for service, a motivation for giving back from the original protocol blue to the latest release in the lawman series, Bass Reeves protocol has always been about honor, passion, and yes, people. It's what their life's work has been and always will be about power of the P protocol cigars. So gentlemen, we opened up the, open up the show. uh, And I even put it in the, the uh, ad for tonight's show too. Uh, It's, it's one of my favorite scenes and we'll get into favorite scenes in a second, but the, the lines that we read off in that opening on uh, those opening remarks, but um, what are, we're going to talk about some of our favorite quotes from the film. And as I was kind of exploring this, this is a highly quotable movie. So uh, when I was kind of exploring it myself, um, I really gravitated towards a lot of Rubens, uh, Elliot Gould's character, Ruben, who, uh, who bankrolls this entire, the entire premise of the film. Uh, and, uh, and one of the remark, one of the opening lines too, when he's talking, when he finds out that they're they're going up against Terry Benedict and they're going to be stealing from his three casinos, it's just, if you're going to start, if you're going to steal from Terry Benedict, you better goddamn know this sort of thing used to be civilized. You hit a guy, he'd whack you done. But with Benedict, at the end of this, he better not know you're involved, not know your names, or think you're dead because he'll kill you, and then he'll go to work on you. That that bit is just so hilarious and the way he delivers it and it's just i mean i i still laugh at it every single time and uh and i i he's he's one of the great line deliverers in the entire series like the entire three films but he really hits a home run for me in a lot of a lot of ways this uh in this film i got a couple more but i wanted to i wanted to give the floor sam sam what you know you rewatched it for the for the first time in a long time, you know, most more recently than us. I mean, what, what, what kind of stood out to you? Well, I do agree with you. Ruben has so many great lines. Um, and they're most of the time they're hilarious, but I have two quotes here. I'll do one and then I'll let Fred do one. Um, it's at kind of the get together when they have the crew assembled for the first time. And, you know, Danny Ocean comes out and said, this is a highly lucrative um, you come inside if you want. If not, eat all you want. No hard feelings. You can go home. And then Linus doesn't get up. So Ruben walks over to him. Said, you're Bobby Caldwell's kid from Chicago. It's nice there. Do you like it? That's wonderful. Get in the goddamn house. 
I, I just think that is perfect. Like they're just getting this young kid into the game. It's oh man, it that that introduction is is hilarious. Um, I I have some I have a hot take on Linus Slater, Matt Damon's character, but uh, I'll save that. But Fred, what what what's uh what are some of your what's your one of your favorite lines? Well, honestly, I already knew you took mine by your opening one, which by the way is is probably the best interaction between Clooney and Brad Pitt in the entire movie. So mm-hmm. my other choice, the only other one I wrote down was the one Sam just said. That was my other favorite. I mean, that uh, was the one that I'm like, I'm like, okay, no one's going to pick this one because it's kind of a little bit obscure out here. Um, you know, so yeah, that was my other one. I mean, I, I'm trying to think off the cuff. Um, the, the other line that I think is a good line that isn't necessarily a funny line was, and, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing because I didn't go look it up, but um, there's the moment when... Um, when Clooney is, is talking to Julie Roberts as Tuss and saying, you know, d- does he make you happy? And she says, well, he doesn't make me sad, um, which is a good line. Right. Now that, that actually, it's funny that that scene that you're talking about there, Fred is also like one of the, um, I, I think it's one of the best pieces. I, I know this is like, like really over the top, but I think it's one of the best interactions of those two iconic careers like for like for for two and a half minutes they're straight fire and their their performance is just like this is like watching two of the greatest and they're i mean the eye contact the subtlety the the malice like you can tell i mean hell hath no fury right like a woman mm-hmm, scorn mm-hmm, and she's mm-hmm. she's got all of it in her face man and she's just just delivering it every single line it's beautiful yeah um, so I have some, I have some interesting thoughts on tests later too, but, um, but I'm, I, I'm I, curious I, love to that see, I, I have a feeling we're going to be on different sides on this, but we'll find out. So, um, so the, uh, what, so what about just to take, since that's one of my favorite lines from Ruben too, but what made you, uh, Sam, Sam grabbed it, but what made you, what, what's, what, what did you like that interaction between him and Linus? What was it about it? I actually think, um, I mean, you know, I, we'll talk later about who had the performance and I did not choose Elliot Gould for the performance, but it's hard pressed not to and how in the air of having money, but vindictive enough to go out who he wanted to go after and bankroll and just his, 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 his whole demeanor of how he played it. And I, I, I hold some of that weight against how the guy played the similar character in the original which comes off very weak in a lot of ways in the original. Um, just this guy that's just like all freaking out over everything and just doesn't feel like he's got it together. And you don't get to the position that he has without being around the block and knowing the rules and weighing it in. And the, and the scene where, you know, they pitch it to him and he's like, no, hey, you know, you know, hey, give me your address. I'm going to send you some, you know, you know, reclaimed furniture or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> You know, and they're like, and by the way, who, who, who are you? Who are you? What, what casinos are you guys going after? You know, and then great scheme years. And they're like, you know, and they're like, they're all, yeah, are they his casinos? I didn't know they were running his casinos. So I think, I think that, um, I just think that Elliot Gould played that part brilliantly. And so I, that's why I liked a lot of his lines in the movie. You know, you mentioned about the opening, the opening uh, lines that we talked about and how like it's the greatest interaction between, but Clooney and Pitt are like, they're they're so in sync for 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 all three of the films that they do together in this they like they're just so like the the interaction between them when they're walking away 
when he says, "Hey, what 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 genius? What you what casinos did you geniuses pick to rob?" Yeah. And they're like, and it's it's Danny's plan, but he looks to to Rusty for confirmation. What are we doing? And Pitt's just cleaning his glasses, saying the Bellagio, the Mariah. Yeah, he's like, and they just like this casual. They to, they're totally playing Gould, which is great. They're totally playing Ruben. It's just awesome. But 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 Ruben knows it. He knows yeah. that's what's great about it. He always has the air of being somewhat the, the smartest guy in the room as far as he's seen all he's seen these guys come and go. He knows they're good at their job, but he's seen a million of these guys. So that's what's great about it. Yeah. He's like, but what am I saying? You guys are pros, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but lest we forget, if you get out the front door, you're still in the middle of the fucking desert. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. He's just, he's, 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 he's awesome. I, I really like, and that's like the other one. Um, the other one of my favorite lines is it, like, we were talking about the remainder, like it's right before the remainder furniture thing. I owe you with the thing with the guy in the place and I'll never forget it. And yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's Brad Pitt's line though. I've never been to Belize. Like that's just, <laughs> like, that's just, that's one of my, like Pitt's got these really, like these really subtle, these real subtle lines throughout it. And mm-hmm, in fact, mm-hmm. like we talked about the interaction too. One of the best interactions is him literally not doing anything where he's got his head on the bar and Clooney's yeah. like, you yeah. think you, we need one more? Yeah. Um, one more. Doesn't say, and, and Pitt doesn't say anything. Doesn't he's like, Clooney, they don't even eye contact. Clooney getting soon. You're right. We'll get, we'll get, we'll get one more. <laughs> um, I think the the last kind of just throw throw in um, that I love, and like I said, I have a hot take on Damon's character later. But um, when uh, they're talking about Benedict and Rusty is like, "You're scared," <laughs> Linus is like, "You suicidal?" <laughs> Only in the morning. Yeah. Sure. Sam, did you have any other picks? I, I'm sorry, Fred, that we stole your thunder. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. I should have led with my other one. <laughs> You know, you, you, you never want to be the guy last on, on this scenario because, you know, oh, no. always a risk. Definitely. Well, my other one is kind of the classic where, you know, Rusty's on the phone with Benedict. He said, you're watching your monitors? Okay, keep watching. In this town, your luck changes that quickly. Yes. Just, just classic. I mean, there's other funny ones throughout the movie. Like, um, they're when he's shaking his hand at the, the van dealership to talk about lotion. <laughs> Bernie, yeah. Bernie Max entered to change with, yeah. Billy, Billy Tim Denim. Denim like the gene. It's, oh, it's, yeah. I think Bernie Max, like, one of, we're going to get into characters to say, but I think Bernie Max, one of the most, like, the, like, one of the unsung heroes of this film. Um, I, I, I really like his, I really like his performance. He's not on screen too much. He doesn't have that many lines, but he's, he's really great. So, so um, what, so uh, Sam's familiar with this, Fred. So one of the things I like to do on this uh, is just uh, be really critical of basically the original release synopsis that they post. Because like, if you look at like the IMDb like plot description yep. or the yep. original release, it's some of it is just some of them are really just bad. And and yeah. and yeah. and so here I'm going to read the original release that came up with this. Dapper Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, is a man of action. Less than 24 hours into his parole from a New Jersey penitentiary, the wry charismatic thief is already rolling out his next plan. Following rules, following three rules, don't hurt anybody, don't steal from anyone who doesn't deserve it, and play the game like you've got nothing to lose. Danny orchestrates the most sophisticated, elaborate casino heist in history. 
Um, I've, I've got two problems with this synopsis, and then I want to hear if you guys have any thoughts. Um, actually, I'll just say one. My biggest problem with it, nowhere in the entire film, other than probably the last one, are any of those three rules mentioned. Um, and that's where I, like, that's where I was kind of like, what, what rules? <laughs> when, when did, when was there a rule book posted on this? So I, that was, that was kind of the biggest standout for me. Any, any, any thoughts on Fred, any thoughts on the, uh, on the, the rather, uh, no, actually, right. you know what? I was just kind of, as you were reading that, I was replaying that near in, in, in when you brought, not when you read it, but right after you said, when you made that point, I'm like, you know, cause when you, when you, what we know is, it's funny how your brain fills in gaps because as you read it, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like his three rules, but you're absolutely right. We never, we never heard the rules. They were never said. He didn't have a moment of talking to his guys on there. So um, interesting how that is a makeup of his back character, but is never anything actually ever said. As right. far as, you know, the writing of it, hell, most of these things miss the mark because what the audience gets out of it is a totally different scenario. I find it interesting that on this particular description on the release, really not really an, a mention on an ensemble. It was all weighted on him as a single person putting it together. And you knew there'd be people coming along because he orchestrated it with the crew and blah, blah, blah. But it really isn't about him. It's, a, it's about all of them. And yet this synopsis banks it all on George Clooney. Yeah, I mean, it even uh, one of the thoughts on that and I, is uh, they actually even make fun of that. I, I feel like they took the synopsis and made fun of it in one of the opening scenes in Ocean's 12 when they're like, hey, he says he called it Ocean's 11 and Bernie Mac's character is like, I'm a private contractor. <laughs> like, you know, just like, when did this become your deal? <laughs> and uh, yeah. and there, there's a whole bit about it in Ocean's 12. But uh, Sam, any, any thoughts on, on the synopsis? You guys took my two thoughts. One... I did, I never noticed it sucks, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, never, I never even noticed the rules until I read the synopsis. I was like, huh. I mean, it makes sense, but that doesn't seem familiar at all. Um, yeah. And the other thing, they don't mention anybody except Danny Ocean. Yeah, that's it. I was like, well, I mean, arguably, not yeah, even him trying to get his wife back. You know, like nothing. Yeah, nothing. yeah. The whole point of this thing was to get his wife back. Um, which they, they kind of make that point at the end that, you know, Terry wouldn't give up or, but Danny clearly right. that's all he wanted. He wanted the money too, but that's what he wanted. And they don't mention it at all. You know, it's, and then, and that's really frustrating too, because I think that, and we'll get into this a little bit as we get into the ensemble cast and stuff like that. But this, this, the, like uh, the backstory about like the, the making of this film is that they, the, the, the cast had so much fun together making it and uh, it was very much in an ensemble movie and and uh you know it's 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 always great like hearing like actors who have had like really good times making films and stuff like that because i was i was crushed uh not too long ago uh because one of what, a, a favorite movie of mine is hoosiers you know gene hackman and uh for the entire making of gene ha uh for the entire making of hoosiers apparently gene hackman was just miserable like hated every minute of it. He thought it was going to be a flop. He didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And then it ended up being this, like, you know, this, this film that's kind of lasted, you know, stolen the, the hearts of, uh, of sports fans for, you know, for two lifetimes, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. But um, whenever a cast kind of gets together and, and makes it fun is, is, is really kind of cool and stuff. So I, I really like it. Um, so 
so uh, Fred, in the past, um, the past couple of films that we've done, we've had uh, Oscar discussions around like, you know, awards that, you know, these things were nominated for. And there are a couple offshoot <laughs> awards that this, this film was not, was nominated for, for different things. Um, but I mean, it, this, this film wasn't nominated for any Oscars, zero. Uh, and but I mean, if you think about it, I mean, the star-studded cast, some incredibly great performances, this incredible script writing, uh, brilliant direction by Steve Soderbergh, also one of the all-time great directors, uh, great aesthetics and everything. I mean, did did the Oscars get it right? Did should uh, Fred? What do you think? Do you think this should have been nominated for any Oscars, or do you think it was just one of those fun films and it it has its place in in, in history appropriately? Uh- I think I don't think it's far off the mark. I, I don't see a whole lot Academy Award winner worthy here or even nominee. Um, if I'd have done homework, I probably should have looked up and see who the other you know contenders were that year to know what was in the mix on some of it. But I would not it would not be a best film for me. There's not a best actor. Do they do a good job? Yeah, but they're actors that do you know are, are good at what they do. Does anybody run away with it? Ellie Gould, supporting actor, I think could have been could have been a good case. Uh, I think um, you know film editing slash directing, uh, more so on the editing aspect of it, probably could have been a good case. There's a lot of you know camera work and stuff there that's very good. Uh, costume possibly because the magnitude of it, what they had to do uh, on some of that stuff. But I mean, as far as your your standard ones, as far as script acting, uh, you know, best picture, best actor, actor, stuff like that. None of that. When I look at Academy Award worthy, um, this is just a bunch of very high quality actors with a good script having fun. But is there anything that blows you away in this movie? I I don't I don't think not Academy Award worthy. No. So the the best film nominees for 2002, which is when this would have been eligible for. uh, We talked about this earlier this year. The Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring was nominated. Uh, Gosford Park, A Beautiful Mind, which won uh, Moulin Rouge and In the Bedroom were the were the nominees. I mean, how do you how do you how do you compete with that lineup, though? I mean, this is just a fluff piece compared to all those other ones, both both in script and acting. Right. And like artistically, like if you want to argue the artistic angle, like Moulin Rouge, Lord of the Rings, they have I mean, they have it. They have it destroyed. They have it. They have it destroyed in that way. So. Uh, Sam, what about you? Like any, do you think it missed the, 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 do you think we're spot on here? Or, I mean, I mean, I love the film, so it's not like, I'm certainly not criticizing it by any stretch. Yeah, that's, I think the Oscars. Like, I love this movie, but I kind of agree with Fred. I mean, there's not a lot here that I think competes with some of the stuff that was nominated. Like, I don't, this is definitely not best picture compared to those films. Um, with an ensemble cast, it's hard to win, you know, best actor, best supporting actor when there's so many great, appearances in this movie um like how do, how do you pick one of those guys to be the best supporting actor yeah definitely i mean well i mean they all kind of support each other for the most part like even mm-hmm. and we're going to get this is a perfect segue into the next segment when we talk about the characters and everything but even the major character who obviously dominated the synopsis a moment ago like he gets plenty of airtime, but like if this was if they had really made the film that the synopsis describes where it was literally all about Danny, this this film wouldn't have been we wouldn't be talking about this film, even if it was yeah. George Clooney. We wouldn't be talking about this film. It's the ensemble that makes it, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So go, go into the um, 
the next segment, we're going to, we're going to, at the end of it, we're going to go down the lineup here. It is Ocean's Eleven. This will probably be the longest segment, but we're going to add a couple of other characters here at the bottom end, just two more. Plenty of characters outside of the featured 11 that we could talk about, but want to focus on the main, the main players and key players in the film. Uh, and then we want to, I'm going to go ahead and ask everybody what their, what their favorite character is. So, um, um, so Fred, uh, I'll let you kick things off. You're, you're, you're dressed, uh, you're dressed like him. Danny Ocean played by George Clooney. What what are your thoughts on on, on Danny Ocean and uh, and his I, and the performance by George Clooney? I think he I think he plays it perfect. I think I think that you know again if we're if we're holding it against the original, which is Frank Sinatra's role, um, it, it is the anchor person that the madness is seen through. That's trying to corral these people together. Um, meanwhile, in the back of his brain, making sure that you know that, that everything's going to go, the con's going to go right, and the heist is going to go right. Um, I think he plays that role perfectly. We can talk about people that could swap roles later, but um, I think that he was the perfect person to play that part uh, with that level of sophistication and, and also with his interior motivation of getting tests back and, and, and all the other things. I think he played, I think he played great. So um, we are going to get into to a little bit of casting what ifs later, like, but here's a, here's a, here's a completely, we talk about completely different films from the original to this one. What a completely different film this had been if the original casting choice for Danny Ocean had been selected and it was Bruce Willis. Thoughts, thoughts on Bruce Willis as Danny Ocean. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to go back um, on once you've seen somebody's role be done and then find out who they wanted, because especially if the person pulls it off, um, the classic example is Raiders of Lost Ark, which Harrison Ford was not the first choice. He was barely like the seventh choice. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom Selleck from Magnum PI was the first choice. When we see Raiders Lost Ark and the subsequent films that came out of that, we're like, no one else could do that. He looks good, but he also looks good dirty. He's cocky, but he's also strong. And then you think of, oh, my God, Tom Selleck in that role never would have worked. For case in point, he went on to do High Road to China, which is, you know, hey, I want to do my adventure film, and it sucked. So it's it's really tough to look backwards in there. I think that Bruce Willis, the thing about Danny, Danny Ocean or, or Clooney that I think that serves this role well is his, his ability to maintain being the straight person. He's not comedic relief in this movie. And I don't think Bruce Willis would have properly played that role without falling into the comedic relief. And there's enough comedians in the, in the cast that have all the lines. Danny Ocean needed to be that straight arrow that goes through all the madness. And I don't think Bruce Willis would have pulled it off in the same way. Yeah. The, it's funny you mentioned the comedic role of it and Fred, I'll get your thoughts on, on Dan, uh, George Clooney's performance here in just a second, but like, Sam, um, you're, you already got Fred. Sam. Yeah. Here. Sorry, Sam. Uh, <laughs> Sam's thoughts, but the, uh, um, you know, his comedy, his comedic effort in this uh, contribution to this to this film and this character, are very are very subtle, right? It's the interactions with the other players, and he's the one that plays it straight for the most part. Um, there's a couple of times where he's kind of very wide eyed, um, um, where like when Don Cheeto's character, which we'll get into in a second, when he describes the, the the pickle that they're in because he can't do what he was going to do to cut the power off and everything, and uh, you know when he describes that and he just kind of goes wide eyed like what are you talking about? Like, and mm -hmm. it's just, it's those kind of subtleties where they're they're When you watch the film, the few dozen times, like I have, it's kind of like you catch it and you're like, damn, that's just such a great choice. 
it's just it's just subtle and it's 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 hilarious. Sam, what are your thoughts on Danny Ocean played by George Clooney? Like I think what you just said is key. It's the subtlety that that Clooney has when he plays the role. Like we, I mean, you just mentioned uh, Bruce Willis. Like, all I'm thinking of is John McClane in, in the right. role of Danny Ocean. And it, to me, it just doesn't work. I mean, this is hindsight looking back, knowing Clooney played the role perfectly. But no, I, subtlety. He's the straight narrow. He's very. He's got a goal and he's going to achieve it. Um, and then everyone else just plays off of it perfectly. Um, I don't think you had a better choice than, than Clooney. I can't believe, I didn't know he wasn't the first option for the role. Well, you know, what would have happened if Bruce Willis was the role, instead of actually going safely down, uh, the, the elevator shaft with that rip cord, he, his would have snapped and he would have tumbled down and then he would have opened up the doors in a bloody mess without like half a shirt on. That's that, that would have been Bruce Willis, you know? Yeah, so. then just yippee <laughs> Exactly. So the the next major character, which uh, is uh, which is uh, Brad Pitt playing Rusty Ryan. Um, I mean, this is a this is at this point in Brad Pitt's career. I mean, he is a lister, number one, and George Clooney is actually coming off tremendous success in ER, and he's kind of finding his way into film. Uh, Brad Pitt is more famous than George Clooney when this movie comes out, which is kind of hard to believe when you look retrospectively, it's like, Oh, these guys are two of the, the Hollywood stars of the last, you know, 25 years. Uh, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're top fivers, you know, for the most part. And, uh, but at the time, Brad Pitt was much more famous and for him to play and play second fiddle um, to a quote unquote TV star for the most part is, is pretty, is pretty, is pretty credible. Um, I I I think Brad uh, Brad Pitt's character is really interesting. Um, you know, he's got the tattoo on his arm, but he he has this this obnoxious yet suave costume that he wears. The suits are really an interesting um, choice by the for the character. Um, you know, I, I it's he it's one of the more interesting characters out of the ensemble, just because he's this this kind of um, he's kind of an oxymoron a little bit, you know? Uh, and I, I, I really, he really is, I think he is the, the con playing the suave guy a little bit, but yet he's, he's very quixotic. He's very quick. He's very quick witted. Uh, he's, he's funny at, at times. And, um, but yet he's just very calm and casual and we're going to get into one of his major tropes throughout the, the whole movie here in a second. But, um, uh, Sam, what, what, what about your thoughts on Pitt here? I mean, coming from a guy who did not experience this movie when it came out, I had no idea in my mind that Pitt was much more famous than Clooney at this time. I didn't know that until just now. So, I mean, I think Pitt plays the role phenomenally where he's, you, you kind of get the vibe. He is the con man that, you know, started at the bottom and worked his way up and, you know, he's wearing these suave shirts that they call out later in the film where uh, Danny Ocean says, hey, Ted Nugent called, he wants his shirt back. Um, <laughs> but then there's so many little things that Pitt does that are really funny that they don't have the Ocean character do. Uh, but they're just, they're subtle. And the subtleties play off each other. I, I mean, I really enjoy Pitt in the role. I can't see anyone else in that role. I don't know if he was the top choice 
you might know that off the top of your head, but I can't see anybody else in that role. I, I didn't see anybody else uh, necessarily. So yeah, I, it's, 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 it's a really, really, I think just a really great job. I'm Fred, what are your thoughts on Mr. Rusty Ryan played by Brad Pitt? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think what's interesting on, on that is that he's really one of the only, one of the only other characters that gets a backstory. Uh, by the whole him playing poker with it, with the, you know, training that training the other actors, you know, uh, or actors in that movie, not actors, actors, but, um, you know, that, you know, how to play poker and stuff like that. Um, he has this undercurrent of being smarter than he plays. Um, you know, he's not, he's not necessarily Danny Ocean smart, but, but, he, but he's sharp. He's been around the block. He's not as sophisticated. He's not as polished. You kind of get that he later in life becomes a, a more polished Danny Ocean type character. Um, but, but I think Pitt plays the complement of it perfectly. I think he plays, he takes his place and he doesn't overstep, but he, but he plays that, Hey, if there's a number two in this room, it, it's me. And um, I, I think he plays it well. The, the scene where he's telling Linus of the tips of what to do, not, not do and, and do <laughs> is a fabulous scene. We didn't even bring it up earlier, but that, and I, I actually thought of that one, but I'm like, oh, that's way too long of a scene. And then he gets all the way in, whatever you do, make sure you don't. Oh, and then he has to go to the other room and Linus right. is just stuck sitting there going, wait, don't do, don't do what, you know? I mean, so I think, I think Pitt's obviously having fun in the role. And his character is somebody that would have fun. And I, I think his choice is perfect. It's, it's great stuff. So, um, ne so next up, so um, I'm going to save, I'm going to save, I'm going to go to you, Fred, on this one. Uh, Cause I'm going to save my hot, I'm going to save my hot take for last on this. So Matt Damon, uh, who, okay. So 2001. So this is after he wins the Oscar for co-writing Goodwill Hunting with Ben Affleck. He, he starts doing a couple other films. This is pre-born, okay? So this is pre, like, him becoming the star. But he is, he is a, uh, a watch-out kind of Hollywood star at this time coming in and playing Linus Caldwell, the young kid from Chicago. He's the junior member of the ensemble. He's the last to be added. Uh, so, Fred, your, your thoughts on, on Linus Caldwell played by Matt Damon? Um, I like Matt Damon. I like a lot of his work. I think he misses the mark on this movie, and I don't think that's his fault. I think it's a casting problem. Um, I just, I don't, I think his physical appearance is too big that I think you wanted somebody a little bit mousier, someone, you know, someone a little bit more nervous on one hand, he's super confident and he's, you know, the, the, the son of another guy and, you know, and, and he can do the lifts and all the other stuff. But then, you know, you got the scene where ocean, you know, basically takes it back from him and meets him in the cafe. Um, of all the characters, and I'm usually pretty forgiving, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to accept you that you're in this role until, you, until I see otherwise, he's the only one for me during the film. And, and later it's okay. Cause you just finally get used to it. He's the only one for me that seems like out of the gate. I remember seeing it originally. And even when I've rewatched it since he's the only one on the gate. That's like, this is the first moment where I feel you wanted to get another box office name into your roster and not necessarily the best person for the job. Mm -hmm. yeah Sam? i i tend to agree with you i think everybody else fits the role perfectly i wouldn't recast anybody else but matt damon it just doesn't seem like it quite fits um for one i mean this is also you know a directorial thing they wanted he's not the most likable character in the movie he might be the least likable character in the movie uh, because you kind of love everybody else 
even the Mormon twins. I mean, they're hilarious. Mm-hmm. They're out of control, but they're hilarious. Um, but I'm curious who I would recast him as because I think he does an adequate job in the role, but I just don't think it quite fits um, the role of Linus. Well, my hot take apparently is not very hot at all because I thought I was going to be weird about this. I, I, I'm, I, I agree completely. I, I hate the role. I, I think I, I, I love Matt Damon. I think Matt Damon's a great actor, um, and and I think this character de- definitely needed to be in the film. But you're you're right, Fred. Like he's he's too big to play this. In fact, like it's almost like. Matt Damon's performance is almost like over the top in the sense that he's trying to be timid and it's, it's, it actually gets worse in oceans 12. He's worse in oceans 12 and, and he kind of forgives himself in oceans 13 where he finally, finally like, and it's, it's appropriate because it's several years later in his actual stardom too. And he kind of plays that role that's the, the the third one is actually my favorite of the Linus Caldwell performances, but uh, it's actually worse in Ocean's 12. I can't stand him in Ocean's 12, but I, this one is just really, it, it's weird. It, he's, he's like you said, Fred, he's confident in one stretch. And then he's like this, this mousy character in another. And he just doesn't know how to, Matt Damon doesn't know how to play it almost. It's really, really bizarre. Um, and, and I don't, I don't like it at all. So a couple of, so uh, one of the, one of the most famous uh, recasts uh, who was considered for this role was, uh, was Mark Wahlberg, uh, which is pretty ironic. I mean, basically the, the same guy, same town from the same town, same era, everything. Mark Wahlberg is Linus Caldwell. I, I think that's honestly a worse decision. Uh, so if that was my choice, I guess I would pick Matt Damon. I don't know. What do you, what do y'all think? Uh, Mark yeah. Wahlberg is Linus Caldwell, the timid yeah. guy from Chicago. I, I don't like, I don't love the Matt Damon role in it, but I think I really hate Mark Wahlberg in this role. I, I agree with you. I think that's a, if those are your two options, they made the best decision. <laughs> Brad, what about you? Yeah, I don't, I don't, that, that wouldn't be who my choice would be either. Um, I, I, I don't know that he would play it any worse and, and, and I, you know, then, then Damon did, I think it would just be, we'd be picking apart something else we didn't like about it. Um, I just think that that character was missed. I think they really needed to dig down in the casting a little bit better and, and, and get somebody. Um, part of the problem is, is that for whatever reason, and I don't know if it's because of Matt Damon's screen presence, which is, is strong in whatever he's in, um, he, he, comes in, he comes off as too big of a character in this ensemble group. There's too much importance revolving around him. So he's forced into a higher level of spotlight, which probably makes the role more awkward for us. Um, I don't know who it would be. It'd be interesting to go down a list of actors around that time and see who could have could have been it. Uh, I just, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think Wahlberg would have been the choice for me either. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask if you guys had any uh, uh, any you know contemporaries of that age that would have been that would have been really good. I gotta uh, look. The- I'd have to I'd have to look up and see what age everybody was then. You know, age appropriate and stuff like that. Um, they probably should have went with somebody that came off younger, a lot more raw, um, you know, that was just a good pickpocket, nothing else. But, um, 
you know, and, and maybe it's lack of backstory on Linus that maybe would have helped it a little bit, but yeah, I don't know offhand anybody, you know, I'm sure someone else could have done probably a little bit more appropriate for me anyway. So here's some stars around his, around that age ish around that time. And there was actually another casting consideration. Matt Damon was actually third. It was Mark Wahlberg uh, ended up not doing it. He ended up, um, and he later regretted it and even pokes fun at Matt Damon later on about it in some interviews, which is funny, but like Ben Stiller, um, you know, uh, Hugh Jackman, Keanu Reeves. Um, I'm just thinking of guys like around that kind of that younger age around that time. Um, yeah, maybe know, that was their only choice then. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you, I mean, you get some of the teeny boppers, maybe a John Cusack or a, like from like the American pie era of like Thomas Ian Nicholas or Eddie K Thomas or something like that. May, I mean, you might've gone younger, like super young, like Eddie K Thomas or, you know, a Thomas Ian Nicholas or something like that from, you know, you know, the, the, the kid from, I don't think the age, I don't think the age timing is right, but the, 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 the character in my mind is like the kid that was um, the lead in that 70s show. Um, yeah. Topher Grace. Yeah. That, to, the guy who's in the yeah. actually film. Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. Topher Grace, I think would have been appropriate in that role edgy yeah. kind of nervous but i think yeah. he would have been like and again let's just assume he's the right age at the right time i think he would have been a good choice that's that's yeah because that's, that's right he's actually in the he's in the poker scene so yeah, yeah i think he would have he, he was the right age so i think he would have been a better choice yeah so uh here's a question for here's a suggestion from the chat and i like this one too giovanni ribisi who plays yeah. you know who plays yeah. like in, in that kind of that that time he uh yeah of movies He's in Gone in 60 Seconds. He's the brother to Nicolas Cage's character. He could totally yep. play that neurotic, nervous kind of, yeah, with a little bit of edge to him and, and could be confident in some areas, like so some points. So here's a so here's a here's a character who's actually second consideration. So it was Mark Wahlberg, turned it down. And then um Johnny Damon, uh, Johnny Damon, baseball player, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp was considered for this. Nope. No. Oh, God. Although, although here's here's the thing. I mean, I say no, and I say it uh, probably a little bit too quickly. Probably one of the, you know, I, I don't say most underrated actors because, you know, I think that unfortunately we we throw too much Pirates of the Caribbean into that mix over the, you know, that, that that destroys his acting ability. But when you take anything from Ed Wood to, you know, all the other stuff, his body of work, um, I, I would have liked to have seen that probably before I would see Matt Damon because I have a feeling he could probably pull it off. Right. Nice. I mean, another one that kind of comes to mind, I, I don't think this is perfect. Um, I also think he was too young at the time. It's Heath Ledger. Hard to say. Yeah. That's hard to say. Yeah. It's not one I hate right away. Like, I hate a lot of those right away. But yeah. 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 I like Giovanni Rubisi the best, actually. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's good. good. That's the Topher, good. The Topher Grace. Topher Grace. Yeah. And, and Giovanni so I both, I think, would have been good choices. Um, character wise from an on screen, I think that the problem with Giovanni is that he's too close to, um, is it Rainier? That's the, the tech guy, the, 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 uh, the IT guy. Eddie Jemison, the Livingston Dell. Yes. Yeah. So I think he's a little close, uh, you know, physically that way, but anyway, yeah. So yeah, well, I think we got it covered on Linus. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, so so the next character, which we've actually spent a lot of time already talking about, he has some of our best lines, some of our favorite lines, some of our best interactions. A a a Hollywood industry, you know, 
veteran uh, by all measure him and another character which we'll get into in a moment are like the the senior members of this group uh but uh Elliot Gould plays uh Ruben uh which I never knew his last name I actually had to look this up on the cast Ruben uh Tishkoff is that Tishkoff is actually his last name in all the three films I don't know if that's ever mentioned but apparently he has a last name I've just known him as Ruben this whole time but uh Elliot Gould as as Ruben Tishkoff um <clears throat> Sam your thoughts <laughs> Excuse I think me. if you change this role, you're a crazy person. I, of all of the roles that were played really well, I think this one might be the best one. Uh, but even, even with not a ton of screen time, comes off as this massive character. And it's awesome because he doesn't have as much screen time as Clooney or Pitt. But I think what all three of us picked a Ruben quote when we picked mm-hmm. our favorite quotes. Um, like, that's big. That's big. Like he's a minor character and he's, he's the money basically in the whole con. He doesn't really do anything leading up any of the con stuff in the film, but we all talked about Ruben. So I, I don't think you can recast this person. I think he does it perfectly. Yeah, I really, I, I just, I think he's incredible. Um, I, I, the way he, the way he grabs hold of the character, he fully leans into it um just just every the the wardrobe choices the way he delivers lines is um it's it's he's he's perfect like he's he's the he is the perfect his character is the perfect representation of what i feel like old vegas represents like he truly feels like old vegas like an era but you know that's passed him by and uh and i think he's just fantastic uh fred yeah, I mean, I think Sam said it best. I mean, you know, in a in a movie full of lots of quotes, we all pick a Ruben quote, and he does. He probably has the least screen time out of anybody on there, other than the Chinese acrobat. Uh, so, uh, you know, yeah, I th- I I couldn't. No one could have played it better. I think he played it perfect, and there you go. Yeah, and he he toes the line perfectly. Of, you know, you get the sense Ruben is a very intelligent person, but he's also a little crazy. And he toes that line perfectly where you don't just like sway into, oh, this guy's just nuts. And, and he just, it's perfect. Yeah. So now enters the other, um, the other veteran of, of Hollywood. Um, iconic place in Hollywood history, what he's done in the length of his career from directing to acting even he actually even produced and even did some writing as well Saul Bloom is the character played by Carl Reiner um and um you know we're we're introduced to Saul at a at a at a you know a dog racing track in you know in Florida which is just you know quintessential retiree territory and you know Brad Pitt's character goes and visits him and um it's the from the bucket hat to the 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 Hawaiian shirt. Saul Bloom is this. I mean, he has the greatest transformation out of all the actors, right? Uh, it, or characters in this film, right? He goes from what he's looking like to this. He's supposed to play this billionaire, um, which uh, I mean, the the ver, you know the versatility that he has going from you know, this. I, I don't even know like Saul's background. I'm I'm presuming like this northeastern um, you know um, expat from from the northeast to down to Florida, 
ex-con guy been in the game for you know 40 years got got ulcers got out of it and uh and then he he ends up playing this this russian billionaire you know in um oh gosh i forgot the character they plays so saul blooms his name but um oh gosh i can't believe i can't believe it's i've watched this film so many times what, what's his name the, 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 the i, I can't remember you know i just um uh, we'll look it oh, up. I got it. I got it. Lyman Zerger. Lyman Zerger. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, Lyman Zerger. Um, uh, Brad, have you seen a lot of Carl Reiner's work? Like, what, what did you? What yeah, did you think look, I mean, look, he, he's, he's a rock star. He's a genius, like you said, in Hollywood. And a lot of people, you know, um, that were just seeing that or coming of age seeing that movie have no idea of his body of work. And it's, it's not relevant to the film, obviously. Um, if there's one character, that if you go back and watch the film and you watch it from this perspective of what are they doing when they're not talking? What do they look like? He says so much on little bits that he's not even talking. I mean, if you take the scene where, you know, he's done asking the question, you take the scene where he's at the dog track right after uh, Pitt leaves and he's just kind of staring off into space, deciding what to do with his life. And, you know, does he have one more hit left in him? Uh, and then you take the scene at the fountain at the end when they're leaving and he's just the last guy still looking out over the fountain, you know, reflecting on his life. You have so much story going on in your brain and he's not saying a word. And he's the only one that has that in the film of those moments. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, he's, he, 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 he says a lot without saying anything. And, and that's what I love. And, and of course, his transformation is great. Um, you know, he's the old veteran that's you know been around, done it, and the tricks are are bigger and badder than whatever he ever did. Um, but yeah, I think I think he's 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 perfect for it. And I I can't you know I'm sure there are others of his talent that could have handled that role, but I think he handled it perfectly. He's the uh, he's one of two members of this cast that have since passed away. Um, you know, he passed away in his 90s. Unfortunately, we lost another one far too young, which we'll get into in just a second. But. Um, the from from what i've read about during the filming of this you know like they no one actually you know after scenes and stuff like everyone hung around the entire set like all constantly like in between takes they were all chumming it up everybody uh and everyone kind of gravitated towards gould and around carl reiner and just listening to 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 war stories essentially and and uh you know you got you get a feeling that you know him and gould were the only ones around when the original one was actually filmed and stuff and so for them to to remake that you know um, they weren't in it, but for them to 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 be around during that era and see that kind of remake and and everything, it just uh, I, I I love it. Here's the one. Here's my here's my one my one Saul Bloom moment that I I wasn't a fan of. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. The scene where he's getting he's getting fitted for suits, and you know. Danny Ocean says to him, are you ready? And he says, if you ever ask me that question again, I'll, you know, you won't wake up the following morning. Just this real malice that just, I, I mean, I get it. He's the, he's the old guy who doesn't want to be perceived as old, I guess. I, I, I guess that that's what they were going for. I, I don't know. I just didn't like it. It just seemed out of place to me for the whole, you know, tempo of the film. I don't know. What do you, what, am I just crazy guys? What do you think? It, it does seem a little out of place. Now, I, that was the first thing that popped in my mind, too, because, you know, Fred was talking about how he kind of commands the screen without saying anything. Like, you, you are gravitated towards Saul in that, that moment. And just this malice comes out of nowhere. It's like, man, this guy has seen some shit in his days as a con man. 
and he does not want to be doubted by these young guys was my, my kind of takeaway from it. But it was, it's also kind of like no one else shows any kind of malice like this. Yeah, it's a little dark. Andy Garcia as Benedict. Yeah. So it was, it was a little dark, which kind of came out of nowhere. Fred, any thoughts on the scene? I was okay with it. Um, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's poking somebody over and over and over again. I mean, you know, there's, there's numerous shots at him early that lead up to that. Um, I didn't equate it quite as, you know, as violent, even though the line certainly says that, but I think, you know, he's boxing in a corner and he's, you know, basically, look, I'm sick of this effing question. And now I'm throwing out the swear word that, you know, type thing, or I'm swearing at, you know, I'm throwing out the, you know, this, I'm going to say a line that is going to make this a non-conversation going forward. You know, I may be old. I'm still a professional. I'll handle my shit. Um, I, I thought I thought it worked. So speaking of professional, um, this next character um, is historically uh, not credited in the film. He actually does not appear in the original credits of the film, which is interesting because sure. he's a, he's a, he, he, you know, nowadays, you know, kind of, you know, to this might surprise Sam because he, he at the time he said he wasn't aware that Brad Pitt was bigger than Clooney, but Don Cheadle was not credited in this film historically. Um, and he plays Basher Tar, uh, the I guess Cockney British uh, guy that uh, is the the explosives expert and everything like that. And um, um, so one of the things that I've heard, one of the biggest criticisms that I've heard of this performance over time from several different people is just how bad his accent is and just it's really really terrible and for the life of me i i i kind of wanted to like i as, as i was re-watching this and as i've heard these opinions over over the years and stuff i've wanted to be mad at him for it but i just don't like i think it's just over the top and that's his character and he's obnoxious and everything is a is everything's an expression or slang and I think it's just part of the character. And, and, and he even Don Cheadle even says later on in, in interviews, like he, he, he knew it was bad. He knew the accent was terrible. And, but I don't care. I, I'm, I'm just in the camp of, I don't care. I thought, I thought it was a, I thought it was a funny performance and his lines were, you know, kept you on your toes. Cause you had no idea what the fuck he was talking about uh, half the time. And he has to actually explain it in several scenes, uh, which is even better. So um, Fred, what, what are your thoughts on, on Don Cheadle? Um, I, I like Don Cheadle a lot. I, I think the, two things. One, I mean, he went to London to try to pick up the accent. He went to England and he, and he doesn't, he doesn't nail it. Um, um, I don't care because he's roughing around the edges. And I think most people wouldn't even realize that you have to have an ear for that and know that most people really don't. Um, the other thing I forgive him for, which has nothing to do, if there's any, any uh, gaffes or things that are wrong in the script. Technically, there's a ton of them surrounding the bomb that he blows off to not knock out all of the power. Um, there's a ton of things that are just off base on that whole scenario. Um, but again, not his problem. Um, I think he, I think he pl- plays the role fine. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, I'm okay with what he did with that role. Sam, uh, what are your thoughts, Don Cheadle? Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same boat as Fred. You know, we're not disagreeing a lot right now, but I think he plays the role well. I mean, he plays this over-the-top explosives guy with this crazy accent, which is not the best. We all agree on that. But I, you don't even care because that's the, that's the role he's given is this wildly over-the-top guy that nobody can understand. 
And I mean, that's that moment we get from Clooney where he's like, okay. you say? Um, Rubble, Rubble. Rubble. <laughs> Rubble. Barney Rubble. Barney. Yeah. We're be Rubble. Barney. <laughs> <laughs> Unless we're intent on doing this job in Reno, we're in Barney. Barney Rubble. Trouble. Are we going to go? We're, we're going over favorite scenes later in the uh, show, right? Right. Right. Okay. All right. I'm going to hold the, I'm going to hold I'm going to say then. Okay. Go yeah. on. So, um, so the, uh, the next, uh, the next role is by the other member of the cast who has un- unfortunately since departed us far too young. Uh, but, uh, Bernie Mac plays Frank, Frank Catton, who's actually the, f- it's not Brad Pitt. It's actually, he's actually the first person that, uh, George Clooney's character, Danny Ocean goes to see. Uh, right after he's released from prison in the opening scene, um, and uh, and uh, I I, uh, I I really love the uh, the slow play that Frank Catton's character is. Like he's he's there. Uh, he supplies the plans. Uh, he's kind of he's the inside guy, and then he has this. We're going to talk about scenes later, but he has this incredible scene to kind of bow out at towards the end of the movie that I just think is, is, is fantastic. Um, but, you know, for, for a, for the comedian of the, at the level that, that Bernie Mac is at in his career at this point to play, you know, so far down the fiddle uh, in terms of line uh, and, and for him to, to really kind of go after his, his, his parts and stuff in a way, I think are just really, really well done. Um, I mean, I thought I had, you know, you know, Sam, you mentioned earlier about how we're not really disagreeing. Like I thought, I, I mean, I thought I was going to be on the outskirts looking in. I thought you, it was really funny that you guys all agreed with me on Matt Damon, Linus Caldwell. I thought I was going to have the hot take of the show there. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, but Bernie Mac, uh, um, I really, I really liked his Frank. I think he's the unsung hero of the ensemble personally. That's just me. Sam, what do you think? You know, he's fantastic in the film. I mean, I, I might say Ruben might be the unsung hero, but maybe we're all giving Ruben the top credit. Um, no, but he's he's fantastic in the whole thing. It's like, you kind of see, oh, he just kind of has a minor role in the whole movie. And he has this massive moment at the end, which is integral to the whole plot of the story. And that scene is fantastic. But no, it's 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 Bernie Mac, man. I. I can't disagree with the, the casting choice. I don't know who else was considered, but they shouldn't have even been considered. This should have been Bernie Mac's role. And for him to take such a, you know, a lower profile role compared to like Clooney, Pitt, Damon, who were kind of the three, you know, big stars of the era. It's, it's really awesome. And I think, I mean, Frank Cadden, Ramon, if you want to call him. Ramon Escalante. Yeah. <laughs> He's the only, he's the, actually the only, he's the only person in the ensemble uh, with the, other than Danny Ocean, where his real identity is, is known uh, on the other side. You know, mm-hmm. Frank Catton's name gets revealed to in the, in the, his last scene, essentially. So uh, we're going to get to nitpicks here in a little bit, but uh, Bernie Mac's performance, uh, Fred, your, any thoughts on him? I think it was good. I think that, um, you know, in, in, in acting, the hardest thing, it, it's easy to do um, drama. It's hard to do comedy. Um, and one thing that you see when comedians go into films and stuff like that, he, there's the trap to play it too funny. 
to play it too wild. And he keeps it very close to the vest. Robin Williams was good at that in a lot of his serious roles and stuff like that. And Bernie Mac does not fall into the trap, which would have been easy for him to want to grab more limelight, to make his scenes bigger than they need to be and fall into those traps that I can be funny. Uh, and he doesn't. He doesn't fall into those traps. Um, he, he plays it. He plays it very well. Um, you know, he's, he's a pivotal person that understood his part in the ensemble and doesn't try to steal any more out of that than, than is appropriate. And so I think, I think, I think he was, he was a, really a, a good person for that role. So knowing the contemporary time that I was when I first saw this and knowing who Bernie Mac was, I think that's a great, that's a great point, Fred, because in that opening scene, when he gets to the blackjack table, George Clooney and him have that opening dialogue. I'm, I'm wait. I was waiting, and in, in a lot of ways, I still am waiting for that that funny line for him to deliver when he says, you know, when he's basically, no, sir, you've got the wrong, you know, you've got the wrong person. But mm-hmm. he plays it very straight, like you said. And it was, I was waiting for that joke. I was waiting for that the shoe to drop in him for him to be like, "Hi, I'm Bernie Mac," and you know that kind of thing. And it just, it never happened. And and you're right. I thought he was, I thought he was brilliant for it. Um, so, um, interesting enough, this, this next, this next guy is probably, I, I, I think, and I, you guys can, with the exception of maybe with the exception, I guess, of the amazing Yen's, uh, the amazing Yen, Eddie Jemison's probably the least famous of the ensemble. Um, and he plays Livingston Dell, who's the, you know, the, the, the technical guy behind the whole thing. And, um, and oddly enough, I think he's mostly out of place. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's hilarious that he's actually coming from a place in the story where he's actually working with law enforcement, and then he like switches sides to do this con, which is really great. Um, and um, and it's um, it, it, his introduction is that great that great back and forth between Clooney and Pitt when he's like, you know, Phil Turrentine dead, you know, no shit, what happened? Uh, on the job, he says, "No, skin cancer." Do you send flowers? No, I dated his wife for a while. <laughs> like, and then we meet, we meet living with Stendel in this van while they're, you know, spying on mobsters. Um, and the his his whole like neurotic, like, do you see me grabbing your gun out of your holster and just waving it around, <laughs> just like, don't touch my shit? Uh, is 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 really funny, and I, I think. I, I think his character is very is meek enough, but in when you when he's dealing with his stuff, like he has this air of authority that, like this is my world and don't mess with it. And I, I you know, for as minor of a character as he is in the ensemble, I thought I thought it was I thought it was done done pretty well. Fred, did you have any thoughts on Eddie Jemison? Um, you know, look, I, I think if you were to ask people to start naming off cake. The, the 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 11 he would be the last one that everybody go, oh i forgot about that guy um there's just so many so many characters you can't all shine um i don't know whether it was a script issue um you know i thought that him being very neurotic in the van was a great opening scene to his personality that actually comes out nowhere else in the film he doesn't right. run into a co- co-person you know that's touching his stuff he doesn't run into anything where he, he doesn't get the win save the day because that that trait of his that that detail that he has wins something over you know there so um, he's just that guy in the background that you know you know gets them all dialed in 
Um, there's nothing wrong with this character. I think it's just script-wise, there wasn't provided more time for him to develop into anything else. Um, he plays it. He plays it well. It's, it's just a matter of screen time and what they gave him. Sam, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I mean, if you make him a bigger character, you have to make somebody else smaller. And I think they made the right, the right balance there. Like, he's not a huge character. He has some fun moments, like when they're recruiting him and he's in the FBI van. And they're like, but how are his nerves? Like, oh, not so bad that you know us. Bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the same guy when, later in the movie that we see walk the wrong way down the hallway because he's sweating so much. And he right. And he, yeah, he's got the map on his hand. He's just standing there in the middle of the hallway. It's just. It's, it's funny, too, because you get to see this tech guy that's so good at what he does have to kind of be the con man and get into the back door of the Bellagio and set up. And his response when the guy was like, hey, just, just to walk faster out the door, not to like <laughs> yeah. try to lie and fake it, just to just to try to get out the door as fast as possible, even though the guy's yeah. not even suspicious. Yeah, um, he's but, clearly out of his element there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think he plays the role very well, but, you know, it's a forgettable character compared to some of these bigger guys, which I think is okay because of what kind of performance you get out of some of these other guys. So we, we've talked about, about a lot about the subtle comedy throughout this film, right? And there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Elliot Gould's character is more in your face. Uh, there's a lot of subtlety with the George Clooney and then Pitt banter. Um, you know, uh, you know, Don Cheadle's, you know, character itself is a, is a walking joke. You know, but the but the the actual comedic relief in the script is supplied by the duo of the brothers, the Malloy brothers, played by Casey Affleck, who plays Virgil uh, Malloy, and Turk Malloy, played by Scott Kahn, um, which uh, are interesting choices because Casey Affleck, of course, is the younger brother of Ben Affleck, and at the time he, you know, to his credit, he only has that supporting actor role in in Goodwill Hunting, and he was, you know probably placed there because of his relationship to his brother. Um, and we don't really see how good of an actor he is until later on in his career. And then Scott Kahn, who's the son of a very famous actor in James Kahn, uh, who is, um, you know, you know, you know, just a Hollywood icon in a lot of ways, plays Sonny in The Godfather. And then, you know, Scott, uh, James Kahn later plays, funnily enough, with Vegas being the background of the backdrop of this film, he plays uh, the starring he's a starring character in the tv show las vegas so um really interesting choices there's actually a there was actually another duo that was considered for these roles that i'll get into but um um i totally believe it is totally believable they do such a great job it is totally believable that they're brothers that just the the back and forth it's an obnoxious hilarity uh, the competition between the two of them, it is totally believable. Um, Sam, I don't know. What, what were your thoughts when you saw the interactions between uh, Affleck and Khan? Oh, I agree with you. I mean, unbelievably believable. Like I, I was watching and I was like, man, this is exactly how two of my cousins acted when they were, you know, growing up as brothers. I was like, man, they hit this spot on. You would have thought they were brothers in real life with how they played the role. Um no, it's fantastic. It's kind of funny. Like now you see Casey Affleck in so many more serious roles than kind of the nonsense character he is in this role. Right. Um, and like, it just brings you back to the scene where 
they are still in the van and they make Matt Damon's character Linus stay in the van with them and they just drive him crazy where he has to leave. Yeah. Um, it's so believable in that scene and you can't even see him talking. You just hear their voices yeah. going back and forth. Um, yeah, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. <laughs> like <it's> yeah. <laughs> Like, that is the oldest one in the book right there. I'm not touching you. Um, no, it's it's incredibly believable. They have great chemistry. I don't even know if they're actually in the film separate at any time. It seems like they're always together and they always have that brother dynamic. Yeah, they're, I, think they're, I think they're always together. In this one, they are, for sure. Yeah, Fred, I thought they did a great job. Yeah, Fred? Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to your guys' point, I mean, you know, so take 11 people that are each allotted a certain scene, some more than others, and now take two people that they're only going to get to share the same scenes. Um, so their screen time, you know, if anybody made the most out of, particularly on the smaller roles of their screen time, I mean, you've got, you've got a minute and 10 seconds on a truck race, you've got, you've got, you know, 40 seconds in a van, you've got, you know, by the way, they are the power workhouse in the casino because if you look at everybody's role and you're watching when the actual heist is going on, these guys have more pivotal roles in this heist between, yeah. you know, move, moving, moving, uh, you know, the guy into the vault and then also, you know, changing clothes and doing this and do I mean, they do more. They're more workhorse than anybody. The thing with yeah. the balloons, with the camera, which we'll, you know, forget about that. We'll get about that later. But um yeah, I mean, you, you their their arguments and and the script that was writ for them, wrote for them, and how they handled that, they're perfect. They're perfect as brothers that way. Yeah, they deliver the explosives too, because they deliver to Lyman Zerger and, and Terry Benedict. Yeah. Uh, in that yeah. they, yeah, they're they're all over the place in this in this film, and it's and it's crazy. They don't, they don't get very many lines and stuff, but totally believable. All right, so recasting. Uh, event here so the original the original duo that was slated to play the brothers were actual real brothers in real life and they're they're owen wilson and luke wilson who famously ditched this film to go do the royal tenenbaums so owen wilson and luke wilson in this role fred your thoughts do is is it better is it worse is it the same do you think they could pull it off i think it's the same I think I think both those guys have the chemistry. Both of them. I mean, look, to, the, the script is written so well that any capable actor, opposite another capable actor, can pull that off. Um, I think that those two would have pulled it off just fine. Do you think they were too big at the time, physically or movie wise? Movie wise, like movie wise. Um, you know, I. Probably. I mean, you know, it, it's, it would be a distraction a little bit because you'd probably go, why, why do they not have more screen time? Cause of what they are, it's probably better to have two guys that are capable without having names. You're like, Oh, I'm not seeing enough of them. Um, probably beneath them a little bit in a role, particularly again, you're splitting your scenes with another person. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it would have been a waste of money. Probably it would have cost them more money. I think, I think what they got was fine. Right. Luke Wilson and Owen Wilson, Sam, what do you think? Yeah, I kind of agree with Fred. I think they would pull it off. I think they would do it well. Um, but I think it would have been distracting because the names are way bigger than what Casey Affleck and Khan were at that time. Um, I think it would have been kind of like Damon being too distracting in the Linus role. Um, from what you know, the dynamic of Clint. That was my thought, yeah. Yeah, the dynamic of Clooney and Pitt 
so I think they pulled off. I don't, I don't think they're better. I think they made the right choice with these two. I think Owen Wilson and his brother are probably kicking themselves for not taking them all. <laughs> so, um, so the last one, and it's, I would say that arguably Eddie Jemison's character of Livingston Dell is probably like the least important, least famous and everything like that. But, you know, here comes the, one of the, I guess, flashier performances by a, a, a virtual nobody when it comes to this entire ensemble. And it's, 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 I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. It's uh, Quinn or Kin, uh, Kin Shaobao, who plays the amazing Yen, uh, who obviously is the, the grace man, famously the grace man. He's, he's the guy that goes into the vault um, and, you know, places the inner explosives. And uh, he's, he, uh, obviously the, the stunt man of everybody and everything. And uh, um, so I, um, very, very few roles. Doesn't speak any English uh, with the exception of some profanities. Um, but, uh, but everyone seems to understand them, which is an interesting dynamic in the whole, the whole script and everything. So uh, uh, I have one, one kind of cool little take on, on, on Shabo here in a second, but, Fred, I mean, uh, any thoughts on the Grease Man? No, I mean, I think it was fine. I think that, you know, it, it was a skill set. They had to go outside of their norm and it ended up being a guy, but they didn't need him necessarily oh. to, you know, uh, steal any scenes, you know, uh, ling uh, linguistically or anything. So, yeah, I, I don't have anything. I think I think the, the, the slot was filled. I don't I don't think you throw Jackie Chan or anybody else in there. You know, I think it's just, it is what it is. <laughs> and I think and I think it worked out fine. Sam? Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean. To my me remembering, I watched this movie yesterday. He only has really one line that's in English, and it's near the end of the film when he's like, "Where the fuck you been?" Yeah. When they finally get into the vault, it's like, "Well, if they were there any sooner, you would have blown up." But yeah. <laughs> um, regardless of that, yeah, I, I think it was fine. I think if you have somebody that's a bigger name like Jackie Chan, you're giving too much attention to that role than it deserves in the film. So I thought he did a good job. They filled a role. He did it well. Um, so here's my last thing on Shabo. He was 19 years old when this film was made. 19. And uh, what did I mean? I mean, because all the stunts were his. He didn't have a stunt double. These, these, this is this is his skill set. This is what he's it. This is he is. He's an acrobat. And he actually thought about before he started doing some more films, and then obviously played a part in the two subsequent sequels to this film. He. Uh, um, he was actually considering a, a, a role in Hollywood as a stuntman, but yeah, 19 years old. What a, what a, you know, what a cool, what a cool spot for a kid, you know, coming up. So, um, all right. So that was the 11. So the last two major roles that I wanted to touch on, and I have some, I have some takes on both of them. So let's start with the, uh, the, 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 the secondary reason for the heist. We talked about the, the money is the, the primary object, at least for, a vast majority of the, of the ensemble. Um, but there's a hidden agenda by Danny Ocean. He wants to get it back. He wants to get his wife back and he, or at the very least it's, it is the script reveals. He wants to get him, her away from the, uh, the villain in the film, but Tess Ocean played by Julia Roberts. Uh, Fred, you said you might have some interesting thoughts on, on, on this role. So I wanted to go to you first on her. Well, I don't know if they're interesting as much. I'm not a huge Julia Roberts fan. 
Um, I know you're not supposed to say that necessarily. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, I get it. I, you know, I, I don't know who the choices were. I know that she was getting at the time, 20 million of film. Right. And I know Clooney really wanted her cause he mailed her a $20 bill and said, here, I hear you're getting 20 for a film. So, um, you know, I, I, I just, I mean, I, I can't say that anybody play it better, different, whatever. I think that it's really a script issue as far as, you know, um, you know, her, her reversal at the end and all of a sudden, you know, falling in love, back in love with Danny Ocean, just because he showed the scene of him, you know, of, of uh, Terry Benedict wanting the money back over her type thing. Um, it's just, it's just lack of, of development of why she would get, unless she just picks bad people all the time or whatever it is. Um, you know, you got that there's some chemistry there, particularly when he slips her the cell phone. Cause she's, she's a little bit more, more warm to seeing him again, but then he's leaving. And then when he leaves, she's kind of has a sad look on her face a little bit, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those roles for me that I'm like, you know, when a scene would start, I'm like, oh, great. We got another scene with Tess. It's like, I really, I really didn't care. Um, now that grows better in subsequent films but um in this particular film it was just i didn't i didn't i didn't really care seven minutes of scream time too much too little obviously too much in your mind no i think it was the appropriate amount to to understand his motivation of what he was trying to do um i didn't need to see her anymore yeah i have one other thing on test but sam i wanted to hear your thoughts I kind of agree. You don't really get a lot of backstory to the task character, like why she left Danny Ocean. Did she just find out he was a thief or did she just get pissed and divorce him because he got caught and goes to the exact opposite of Danny Ocean? Like those are scenes in the movie that like Fred said, it's like, Oh, we got another test scene. Great. Some very memorable lines, especially the one at the end, but she's not captivating like you see like why Danny Ocean wants her back. She doesn't have all that way to captivate you and be like, Oh, I get it. I get why he wants her back. But that that's not really present in the film. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I'm with you, Fred. I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, not a fan of Julia Roberts, but I'm not a fan of hers either. She's not the knockout Hollywood starlet that, you know, other people contemporary over time could have been like Matt Damon's whole, uh, line when he's like oh this is just the best part of my day and you just expect this like knockout of a of a female to like walk down the stars and it's just like oh it's the girl next door Julie Rock, which has been her bit in Hollywood right she's the girl next door which is what makes has made her appealing over over the years and stuff and and um and yeah it was just kind of like oh okay uh it's Julie Roberts okay fantastic so um, that was kind of my thing, but here's, here's my, here's my takeaway about the character and here, uh, actually, you know what? I have a question. Actually, that comes a lot later. I have a, I have a very important question about Tess later on in the film. So let's go on to Terry Benedict. All right. So the villain of the film, I, I want to say, I want to say one more thing about Tess real quick. That sure. I'm thinking of. So, so when you look at all the roles and you look at how they're written, you know, if Clooney didn't play it, someone else could have played it and you would eventually warm up to that person to understand the role. If you didn't know Julia Roberts, if you didn't get when she walked onto the film and you know her backstory, you know she's supposed to be, you know, hot I am in Hollywood, you know she's a big ticket item and everybody loves her. Would you love her character or her 
based just on the role and the performance in that film. No, I wouldn't. That's what I'm saying. You wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't understand the motivation of why he was going through all that effort. And that's my problem. Not so much with Julia Roberts is that it required bringing somebody to have their own off the screen backstory to make you want to understand yeah. why he would go for her. Absolutely. Anyway, sorry. Absolutely. So the enter the villain of the film, Andy Garcia plays Terry Benedict, the owner of the Bellagio, the Mirage and the MGM grand, which by the way, We'll get a nitpicks later, but, you know, not owned by one person, by the way, uh, and not even owned by the same company <laughs> in real life. But uh, Terry Benedict and who is this, you know, villainous, you know, casino uh, mega entrepreneur, business owner, you know, represents all things evil and everything. And um, I mean, from the moment he's on screen. I there is a there is a dark cloud that follows this guy that just makes you makes you realize and it makes you not like him and um and he and I think he I think the way I honestly think it wasn't Andy Garcia's acting so much uh that really captivates me I love the way that Steve Soderbergh shot him even including that final scene in the elevator when he gets in the elevator after Tess leaves him and just the the Godfather like top lighting where the you don't even see his eyes and it's just like you realize okay this guy's supposed to be pure evil and everything. I think the way he was shot was really good. Um, I think the uh, the 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 character is is got some interesting takes and everything like that. But I thought Andy Garcia did a did a did a pretty good job. Um, but honestly, I, I you know to the I think it could have been six or seven other people. Um, that could have played this role just as just as well, if not maybe even better. Um, I don't. Uh, I, I have nothing to take away from Andy Garcia. I think he's a talented actor. But those are my thoughts on him. So Sam, what 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 did you think, Andy Garcia as Terry Benedict? You know, I, I think you're right. I think he's probably the character in the movie that you could replace the easiest. I think he does a very good job, and you know, he's shot in this way that he's menacing and he's pure evil. And they don't go into this thing that's, you know, very popular, you know, to give the bad guy some good qualities to kind of explain his backstory. They don't do that in the film. He's just pure evil in this movie. If you don't look at the other two Oceans movies where he becomes more likable and you just look at this one, he's just pure evil the way they shoot it. He's always wearing all black. You know, the bad guys wear black going back to, you know, old movies like Casablanca where but I do think he's the easiest guy to replace in this film because the role is fairly straightforward. You are the yeah. bad guy and that is it. Um, I think he does a good job, but like you said, I think some other guys could have also done just as good of a job. Fred. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, same thing. I mean, there's no, there's no depth to his role. Uh, doesn't need to be. He, he is, and, and Barry, you pointed out perfectly, he is shot very well. Um, they really paid attention to what his height would be in the screen, relation to everybody around him, what he would be overseeing, uh, you know, things below him in the casino and all those shots that they had with him. Uh, played it very well. Um, I, don't, I don't have a problem with how he played it. I think he did an excellent job. I also think, I agree that, you know, there could have been a dozen actors that probably would have pulled off that role just fine. Um, I think that if there's any flaw to him, 
um, or the way he played it. And I don't know if it's him or script related. I never understood why Tess was with them to begin with. Um, with the exception <laughs> of the line, with, with, with the exception of the line that she says, you know, does he make you laugh? Well, he doesn't make me cry. I'm like, okay, that without that line, I really wouldn't know. But then I'm like, okay, she sacrificed a lot of laughter and having fun or whatever for a guy that was stable and wasn't who she thought wouldn't lie to him and stuff like that. And she went that other direction. But other than that, you know, you're kind of halfway through the film going, why is she even with him when she goes to kiss him in the gallery? And he's like, no, there's cameras around. So what? No one's allowed to know about their relationship. Um, it's just, yeah. you know, you're kind of kept in the dark. So I'm like, okay, so what does Tess even see in this guy? <laughs> um, so, so, um, you know, but again, you know, that's, that's probably more of a scripting thing, not necessarily the way he played it. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's kind of playing what, what he's dealt, but yeah, I think a dozen people could have played that role and, and, and we wouldn't even, we'd be talking them in the same light with the same thing. So Fred favorite character of the film, your opinion, go. Well, I mean, look, I mean, Elliot Gould's Ruben is probably, if I have to, you know, pick one that I think is just like, you know, every one of their, excuse me, every one of their moments is solid. Um, You know, it's hard to pick a favorite among everybody like that. But I also really like the things with the the Malloy brothers. I really think that, you know, uh, you know, uh, Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn do just a great job of just their arguments of just two brothers. If you ever believed that there were two brothers arguing, or if you've known two brothers or two cousins or whatever, and, 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 and carrying on what they would have been arguing with at eight year olds. And now they're just big eight year olds. Um, I would, I would say, I would say that would be the close second for me, but I, I, I have to say, I like, cool. I think, I think he's, he's phenomenal in that role. Sam favorite character. I have to agree with Fred. I think it's Ellie gold is Ruben Ruben. Every scene he is in is phenomenal. There's no slow scenes with Ruben where he's not just either hilarious or he shows you this little crazy side or the storytelling side. It's fantastic. And like he said with the Moy brothers, uh, I mean, my other thing is, you know, the duo of Pitt and Clooney. Yeah. Like the scenes they have together are just iconic. Yeah. If, if, if Pitt and Clooney's chemistry didn't exist, the the Malloy brothers take the take the award home for best chemistry, right? Like you said, they're just like like we talked about, they're just the best at that chemistry. They they're very believable as brothers and everything. I I mean, I I love Ruben Tishkoff's the character. Um, I I think it's great. Uh, the the but the the Clooney Pitt, Danny Ocean, Rusty Ryan duo for me is just is still just catapults this film into just uh, the ultimate rewatch just at going back and you what you you see them deliver the lines and you go back and you watch the subtleties of their performance and and just the the little idiosyncrasies and everything which we didn't even mention the biggest idiosyncrasy of rusty ryan we're going to talk about him and just to talk about it here in just a second and take great depth but it um i love it i i, I love i love the overall chemistry of the film um, there are a couple of misses here and there we kind of talked about, but uh, just the, the Danny Ocean, Rusty Ryan thing just does it for me. Um, but uh, but that's fantastic. So a uh, quick break into a couple of fun segments here. Um, first of all, I uh, what you know what are we smoking? Uh, what are we drinking tonight? Uh, we're we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Ocean's Eleven, the 2001 production of it. And, uh, and I'm really, really excited to have you guys on and we've been talking great length of it and we've got a couple more segments, uh, before we, we put this to bed, but, um, I, um, I am smoking, I've got another cigar about to light up here, but I'm wrapping up 
one of my favorite cigars, uh, literally, and I'm not just saying this cause he's on, but, um, it was, it was in my top 10 a few years ago and I absolutely love this cigar and it is aged incredibly well too. Uh, hats off to you, uh, Fred for making the, the Mo- nomad cigar company, the martial law, the original release of it, uh, ages incredibly well, man. I've been puffing on this all night and it's just, it, it's stellar. I I've really, really enjoyed this. So thank you. So thank you. Thank you. What are you smoking, Fred? Um, I've got a Avo Synchro, the um, box pressed um, South America version. It comes in these like these, uh, well, I don't know if they all do, but they come in these like little box press tubes things, which I just think is super cool. Um, and I have Balvini Doublewood, uh, 12-year-old Balvini Doublewood with a drink. That's right. I forgot. I was, I'm actually smoking, a, I'm actually drinking a whiskey and whiskey in honor of uh, Danny Ocean's character. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking the Rabbit Hole uh, Cave Hill Kentucky Straight Bourbon whiskey uh a favorite of uh previous guest justin andrews who was on uh the gladiator episode uh uh last year uh so it is it is going really well with this martial law sam what are you smoking and drinking you know speaking of justin andrews i'm smoking a cigar you gave me the diesel esteli puro oh fantastic uh, cigar i finished the leander number two from mccallif and it was phenomenal i'm very much enjoying this right now with a little uh Will it straight ride? Um, I always like to break out one of my favorites for when I'm on there. Um, and the pairing is fantastic. And then I'm sure I'm going to smoke another one in the show. So I've got a uh, Migdalia ready and waiting. Um, one of my favorite cigars ever um, to light up next. Nice. Fred, so rye bourbon scotch. I've never actually asked you this question. What's the, what's the pick for you out of whiskeys? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a single malt drinker. I'm, I'm learning bourbons, um, just because I've, I've had single malts, you know, since I could drink single malts and, um, but I'm actually starting to warm up some of the bourbons, um, just because a lot of the guys in the cigar industries are bourbon and they're, they're always just like, oh, you should be drinking bourbon. And what I discovered was it's not that I don't like bourbon. It's that I don't like cheap bourbon. Uh, so I've been, <laughs> been uh, you know, shown a lot other ones since. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely just, you know, uh, you know, a good Scottish, you know, uh, single malt. Nice. Which Balvini did you say you were drinking? Uh, the double, wood. double, it's, double my, wood. it's my, it's my go-to. I have a, a bunch of them, but that that's my go-to. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Caribbean cask. Mm-hmm. The Balvinis. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. So uh, this goes into our one must go segment. Uh, uh, Sam's participating in this, Fred. This is your first appearance on LS Fumar Take. So we'll go into the rules here in just a second. But uh, one must go is always brought to you by United Cigars, uh, featuring La Giana Havana, distributors of Jose Dominguez, Bandolero, Garofalo, and the highly acclaimed Atabay and Byron lines. So smoke one today and start living united. So here's the premise, gentlemen. I'm going to give you three things and one has to be kicked to the curb. And it's up to interpretation how you define what kicking to the curb means, if it's uh, out of existence, out of mind, or if it's just out of your personal thought uh, or just your least favorite of the choices. It's up to interpretation. So it's 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 on you. So, uh, Fred, uh, since this is your first participation and one must go, I'll let you kick things off. We're talking Ocean's Eleven night. So let's talk about the trilogy of Ocean's of the Ocean's movies. Uh, I know there was an Ocean's Eight that later came out with it featured none of the people in this film. But uh, Ocean's 11, followed by Ocean's 12, 
Uh, and then Ocean's 13, which featured Al Pacino in the villain role that kind of supersedes the Terry Benedict uh, role uh, in this film. So Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12, Ocean's 13. Out of the three of this trilogy, which one's got to go? Both. 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 So 12 and 13. Oh, 12. No, I think he said both. No, <laughs> I was like, 12, 12 that 12. bad, huh? What, 12? No, just, just 12. 12. Okay, we're going to get into that your choice here in a second. Sam, I wanted to hear yours. It's 12. It's 12. Same answer. Yep. Okay. It's 12 for me too. So I wanted to see if you're on this. I, I actually, takes. I love 13. We have I love no hot 13. Takes in this show. Yeah. No, no hot yeah. Takes in the show. Yeah. I, I, I think 11 is the best. Uh, I love 11 out of all, but I love 13. I, I love 13. I think it's, I think it's great. The whole Godfather bits that get entered into it with Al Pacino being uh, being in a starring role in the film and like the the throwaway Godfather lines that get tossed in. Um, they're not even Godfather lines. They're all Michael's lines, which is just hilarious how they get inserted into this. It's like someone decided to play a drinking game uh, with the script. It was, it was hilarious. But 12 for me, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on Fritz. Why is 12 the one, that got, the one that's got to go? Why is 12 the one that's got to go for you? You know, I think 12 to me just seems like that. Hey, we, 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 we got a hot movie that came out. It did well. Let's throw together another one real quick. Script's not as strong, I think, than when 13 rolled around. They're like, okay, let's get our shit together a little bit. Let's get back, <laughs> recapture a little bit about what we want. Let's make the script a little bit more sophisticated. Uh, let's bring in somebody else that's an icon to really face them off against, which Pacino obviously pulls that off. So, yeah, if I have to pick one of the three, I, I, 13, I enjoy as a movie way better than 12. 12 does nothing more than, hey, I get to visit with the gang again and see what they're up to. But it's, it, it's a little bit weaker of a script for me. So, yeah, I, I would keep 11 and 13 and I'd get rid of 12. Mm-hmm. Sam, your thoughts on 12 has got to go. So for me... 12 does something that's unforgivable and that it's a forgettable movie. Whereas 11 is, you know, arguably the most rewatchable movie ever. You, you kind of forget about 12. Like I'll go back and be like, man, I can watch oceans 11. Ah, oceans 13 is another great fun movie. Ah, I don't really want to watch rewatch 12. It's, it's just kind of forgettable to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've come to, 12 oceans 12 is if i could paint a comparison is is my experience with the drew estate undercrown the original one so when the drew estate undercrown came out it was like it was like it came out with this really hot acclaim and i like i i always i've, I've famously said this i overhyped it in my mind i just you know i overhyped it in my mind and it took me several experiences with to finally get it and enjoy it for what it was I feel like that way with Ocean's 12. Um, I, I've some do I've come to appreciate it as a source, but yeah, like if it never existed, I would be okay. I would really be okay. Um, when I rewatch the trilogy, I watch Ocean's 11 the most. I watch Ocean's 13 and I'll watch Ocean's 12 just to kind of connect the dots. But that's the only reason why. It's the only reason why. Um, exactly. So, so. Um, that was our one must go segment is always brought to you by United Cigars featuring La Giana Havana distributors of Jose Dominguez, Bandolero, Bandolero Garofalo and the highly acclaimed Atabay and Byron lines. So, um, so, but since this has been a show of not really hot takes, 
We've got a little bit of one because this next segment is is going to be a little bit different than normal, but I thought it was a great take by our guest tonight. So normally what we do on LS Format Takes, and we have for the, over a year now, is we've we've asked our guest to or guests to feature a charity or nonprofit of their choice to spotlight and everything. And uh, I asked Fred this uh, this time to uh, to spotlight choice and Sam. I, n- I know your choice uh, is of option. There's a reason why we're not featuring them tonight. I'll go into that at the end of the show. But Fred had a really interesting take on this, and so Fred, uh, I'll let you. I'm going to walk away for just two seconds, but I'll let you talk about why you decided you wanted to spotlight small business, as it were, and uh, and you know. Uh, I know we all have affinity for small business, but why you decided that this would be a great opportunity to talk about the importance of small business, uh, particularly about this time of year. So Fred, take it away. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, one of the things is that, you know, we've always had that campaign particularly, and I think an American Express kind of launched it years ago about talking about small business and, you know, trying, you know, obviously American Express trying to get people, you know, some more American Express or, you know, have them used more, but, um, I think that it's one thing to talk about small business and supporting small business. And, and it's another thing to, to actually do it. Um, you know, I would have this tiny hardware store that was by my house and, you know, occasionally I'd be there, but I'd be over to Lowe's and, you know, and I kind of went back, you know, and then, and then the store closed down. Uh, this is several years ago, pre COVID long before that. But um, I was bummed that that place wasn't there. And then I remember a small restaurant that was there that I didn't go to very often that I'm like, man, that place is gone. I really like going there. And I thought to myself, you know, I mean, they went on a business, but I didn't really support them enough. I didn't, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't doing my part there. So when I really rallied against that um, was, you know, when COVID hit and, you know, I was trying to think, well, how do you, how do you, how do you help small businesses and stuff during COVID? And so when COVID came around, um, I immediately looked at the cigar industry and and mostly because we're on social media and I'm seeing a lot of my friends with shops. I had already sold Nomad by then, but I saw these shops that, you know, had to close because they were in states with lockdowns and they were trying to do some stuff where people would pick it up. So what I started doing every week was, is I started buying cigars from those people directly that would mail, Uh, not the catalogs, but the small brick and mortars that were there. And I gravitated towards the shops that had carried my cigars when I owned the brand. They were supportive of me. I w- had sold my brand, but I'm still a cigar smoker. And I, and I, I was before and I, and I am afterwards. And so um, I started going through this rotation where every week um, for, I guess it was about six months when COVID hit from like, you know, March, April, when everybody's shutting down. Every week I was ordering cigars from different shops and then I would post on social media who it was. And I just, I'd order, you know, I mean, it wasn't always a box. Sometimes it was like, you know, they had 10 cigars or something. I'd order their 10 pack or a box or whatever it was. Um, And I just started working through different shops that I knew that were like, you know, people. And look, I knew my one box wasn't going to move the needle for them and stuff like that. But I wanted to send the message that it was small business. Now, the cigar industry, obviously, we're always talking about small mom and pop shops and stuff like that. And people like them, but then they go buy them someplace else because maybe they get them 50 cents cheaper or something like that. But, you know, you're paying for you're paying for something different at that point. You're paying for a guy that works there that, you know, supports his family. So I've really gone in the last year. So we just bought a new house in um, April that is out in a little bit more in in the country, if you will. It's not really country, but, you know, I mean, I've I've got a lake behind me and I've got a horse farm in front of me. So um, we've been hiring people to do work on this house because we bought it and it needed work. And I've been trying to hire everybody local, whether it's the well guy or the guy that does the pavers or whatever everything we've been trying to hire is pretty much local. 
So I've really gotten back into that, trying to find, you know, local small businesses. And I've, I've met, a, I've had a lot of great crews. I've had a lot of father and son duos. Last week I had a whole irrigation system put in and it was a father and son and the father's getting ready to pass it on to his son and stuff like that. And it was interesting. They were like the Malay brothers. They were arguing a lot, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I really think that, you know, it, you know, it, you know, like we've been going to breakfast at this little place. It's not even a great breakfast, but they're trying to make it and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to do it. And it just, it just means a lot on where we spend our money. And, and these are the real people that, you know, obviously COVID accelerated that because it made us start thinking about that and thinking about all the shops that, that aren't coming back. And then the other thing is I really want to be supportive of the shops right now that it's not easy. They're working understaffed. They're working, you know, they're, they're really trying to make it work in an environment that's difficult in finding people to hire. And maybe they're having to pay more money for those people. So I've really tried to gravitate more. So when you talked about charities and we have other ch charities we support, we have a, a Russell home that has, you know, for uh, disadvantaged kids. And uh, I volunteer for PAL to do their auctions and charities and stuff like that. But when it came down to picking a charity, I really had to think about it because I could, you know, I had a couple of charities that we donate to. But I thought, you know, maybe just as a premise for everybody watching, it's like, what is it in your area? And like I said, maybe it's a small hardware store. Maybe it's a small mom and pop diner. Maybe it is a cigar shop or whatever that, you know, you've been buying some more cigars elsewhere that you go in there and you, you, know, you so you spend an extra 50 cents a cigar, a buck a cigar, whatever. It means a lot to those people. It means a lot to their business. And then you tell your friends about it. And so I've tried to try to do, you know, to me, you know, we don't, we don't look at those entities. When you say, Hey, pick a charity, you're thinking, Oh, Red Cross, you're thinking, well, you know, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or whatever it may be. Um, I think right now, those small businesses, they are a charity. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean that these are people that need our support. They need our dollars. And if you have the dollars to spend, even on stuff you're spending on it, you know, anyway, um, you know, go there. I go down to a butcher shop down the street. He's a butcher shop. I can buy the meat cheaper elsewhere, but not a ton cheaper. You know what? I'd rather support it to him. So that, that was my yeah. take on what I meant by small business. Nice. Nice. Um, I, 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 I like you, Fred, I, I kind of, um, I kind of, I, I took a cue from you during the pandemic and I started doing the same thing. Um, I wasn't doing it every week, but I tried to do it, you know, at least uh, once a month would, you know, picking because, you know, I had a, a small business here that I obviously worked for for a number of years. And, and obviously I supported Michael's Tobacco of Euless and Michael's Tobacco sure. of Keller. And, but yeah. um, there are a lot of small business owners around the country that I've gotten to know over the years by becoming a participant in this industry in the in the, the scope that I am. And I wanted to to support it. And so I, I you know, there were a lot of a lot of folks that were really hard up. And um, it was like you said, if they would ship, I, I would I would buy something from them and and I was happy to do it in, 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 in a small part. So it was, it was like you said, uh, overall, I know my purchase didn't move the needle, but you know, I know there were others like us, Fred, that did that. And so hopefully that really, you know, hopefully it did. I think it impacted them enough to where I saw a lot more survivors than a lot more people that went out of business, which was a, which was a good thing. So for sure. What well, was interesting and it wasn't anything that I have ever planned on, but, um, since I was buying cigars, I mean, it was one thing when I sold them my cigars, but when I, since I was buying them, um, someone asked me because I posted a picture of something that was the, a relative unicorn cigar that was hard to get. And some, somebody asked me how I got it. And they said, you know, you got all your contacts. And I think I did a post going, look, everybody keeps asking me about how am I getting, you know, obviously it must be nice. You know, you're, you're, you're from within the industry, so you can call these people. 
And I actually had to do a post and saying, look, I'm not, I'm not calling. I don't know that I've ever called in a card to get a rare cigar or anything like that. What happened was, is that when some of these started coming out and things were vamping up, particularly this year, a lot of these guys reached back out to me and said, Hey, I don't know if you're looking for these, but I know they're coming out. And if you want me to hold a box for you, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad, glad to give you a box. And so I would buy a box. And so, you know, I didn't get those because I was in the industry. I got them because I supported the small shops. And quite frankly, that's who they should sell them to is the people that support them. Not the guy that walks in that never buys a cigar from them and all of a sudden wants this unicorn that comes out. It should go mm-hmm. to their best customers. I never even saw that coming, but you know, that shows the reciprocity you know, that comes along that way when we support each other. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, Sam, any thoughts before I had one last thought on, on Fred's remark, but Sam, any thoughts on small business? No, I think it's fantastic, man, especially in the cigar business. Like we've got, hundreds of, you know, locally owned, family owned, mom and pop cigar shops around the country. And if those go away, where are we going to have cigars? When it's 12 degrees on my patio, it's not going to be right here. And that is where, you know, the culture of the the cigar community is. And it's vitally important that we support those, those places. Absolutely. So the, as the holiday season uh, is in full swing, everybody, what, we'll, what we are asking tonight is that we encourage you to shop small, shop local, and uh, support your local businesses. We've been talking a little bit about cigars, but as Fred was talking about, he's, he's been uh, hiring a lot of local contractors to help him out. And uh, I'll, be, uh, I'll actually be taking another cue from Fred. Uh, we, uh, we, uh, Sam, we finally got a house. I know you've been, we've been talking about that. Yeah, we finally got a house. And uh, Congrats. So, yeah, it took us a year. Uh, but we've, we're going to be moving here over the holiday season. And, um, and yeah, there's a couple of pieces of work that I'm already hiring out to local people. And uh, yeah, I picked locals um, because uh, for one, they were actually the people who actually called me back, which was nice. Um, <laughs> are you eating shrimp cocktail? Oh, that's brilliant. Well, yes, I am. Oh, that's re- That's awesome. So, um, so shop small, shop local and, uh, and support your local brick and mortars, everybody. Let's, uh, let's get on to the next segment here. What a perfect, 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 perfect uh, segue. I'm going to skip ahead and just in here, uh, we have our debate and discuss segment, but we're skipping ahead to this. We went the entire first half of the show, gentlemen, without talking about one of the greatest bits in this movie, which is Rusty Ryan, character played by Brad Pitt, who is literally eating in every single scene that he's in. And he's never eating the same thing twice. I absolutely loved this bit. In fact, this is actually a trope that actually follows Brad Pitt throughout a through films. Cause as you could tell from the list that I copy and pasted into the show notes, guys, I actually got a couple of other movies in there. You probably saw that, but uh, great. It, it, one of the great scenes and, and Fred, you're doing a great job of it is when Linus is telling him about Terry Benedict and walking him through Benedict's day and everything, uh, Brad Pitt is just chomping down the shrimp cocktail, um, and uh, and everything there. Did you? Uh, one little funny bit about this: he ate a hundred during those takes. He ate a hunt over a hundred shrimp for those takes that he did during that scene. Uh, that's a lot of fucking shrimp. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I don't know. Could uh, Fred? Could you eat? Could you eat a hundred uh, shrimp cocktail? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't know how. I mean, it took a while. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great scene. Um, he, uh, which is interesting, by the way. And, and if you're if you're looking for a gap in there, at one point, he starts out eating them out of a glass, 
it switches to a plate right. at one point in there. So, I mean, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody really notices that, but yeah, he ate. So I guess the whole thing with him eating, which is a joke from prior films. So when, when the actors eat, they go, you know, off screen and stuff like that. And they go wherever and they're on their breaks. So apparently Brad Pitt stays close to the set and he's always eating like right there. And so I don't know who decided to do it in the film, they just decided to make that a thing right out of the gate where he always had food. Yeah. So when you're watching the scene, he is either eating or finishing eating, cleaning up his hands or something on every single scene. It's brilliant. <laughs> what about you? Shrimp cocktail, Sam, could you, could you, could you notch down a hundred of those in one standing? I don't know the time frame that all these shots took place, but that'd be pretty tough to eat a hundred shrimp. I mean, that's, that's, that's absurd. That's nuts. Yeah. So, I, yeah, go for it. I, I did read that it was Brad Pitt's idea to include the eating in every scene that he's in, which is hilarious. It's like, is this just, I mean, it's this awesome trope that kind of goes through every scene, but it's like, oh, this guy's just snacking away on camera in every scene he's in. It's fine. <laughs> well, he, it's funny because in interviews, he kind of tries to play it off like it was part of this character development. He's saying like, well, you know, Rusty's a con, so he's probably always eating on the go and trying to eat whatever he can. So he's just always eating and stuff like, oh, dude, this is totally your bit. Like, whatever, man. Like, and and because it, it's all it, it exists in a bunch of his films, which is interesting. But I went ahead and made the list, guys. I found the list of everything that he eats in here. So um, um, I think I already know uh, Fred's vote, but uh, but here here it is. So it opens up the introduction with him. He's eating nachos before he goes into the poker game with uh, Topher Grace and the rest of the teen the teeny boppers. Uh, bar nuts when he's going through the the famous scene that Fred was talking about earlier with Linus. A cheeseburger um, with bacon. You can tell. And the closing scene when he's picking up Danny Ocean from prison, uh, chewing a lot of chewing gum, cotton candy and a soda at the circus where they get the amazing yen, some kind of parfait or yogurt concoction, maybe fruit cocktail. I'm not quite sure what he's eating at the dog racetrack when he meets with Saul. He's finishing up ice cream when they come back from getting the pinch. Uh, he's also got a smoothie at some point. He's got a lollipop when he's outside the strip bar, uh, getting the 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 pass that the stripper has gotten from the in-house technician, and the, the of course the famously the shrimp cocktail. Guys, did I miss anything? Did I miss any of them? The nachos. The nacho. The nachos. The opening scene. Okay. There was there one when, you know, the two brothers come up with you know the cart that they eventually take. Don't they food? They do bring food. I don't know what it is. I don't yeah, know I don't, what yeah, it is, do. but I think yeah, they, they do bring food. food. They do bring food, and you, of course, he's eating. It. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I'm not sure what it is. You All know, right. there's an interesting. There's an interesting thing from an acting standpoint, though. Um, and I only remember because I, you know, did that for a while. But um, you know, the one thing that that works well for him, which is why I think he does this in other films as well, because um, it's not his only. It's not like only an Ocean's Eleven thing. I mean, he, if anybody's been on camera eating, you know, more than him, I'd like to know who it is. Um, right. It it allows an actor to be very grounded by doing an everyday routine, and when you see it on there, you don't think much of it. But here he is, just doing what all of us do, what a real person does, and he can just do it and do it very matter of fact and help you know still deliver his lines and stuff and still be just very grounded in this type thing. Um, and I think that's just his his shtick. I think that's what what he does. And they talk about him always having food nearby. And that, I think that's the thing, how he didn't gain 20 pounds filming this movie. I don't know, 
Um, but it works for him. Shrimp alone. <laughs> yeah, the shrimp alone. But my favorite part of the shot, the shrimp scene, is he's got the napkin draped very gracefully over his arm, and he's just kind of delicately wiping and stuff. And he always cleans up too. Like he's always, yeah. He's always he's always cleaning his hand. Like in the elevator after the ice cream, he's cleaning his hands. Um, you know, he even after he chucks half the cheeseburger at the end, he's, you know, after the famous little heartburn thing or whatever he's yeah. got, uh, he's he's wiping up after himself and everything. It's a it's a really interesting character decision. So, you, Fred, you, you you mentioned it. I wasn't going to bring it up unless you did. You, you did some you did some acting uh, a little bit. Um, talk I did. I did. About your experience. Well, no, I mean, so so when I when I got done with high school and stuff and I you know went to college for a while and then I then I so I studied at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco and I had a coach and then I went to Oxford to do acting there and performed at Edinburgh then came back. And so I did commercials and film and and, and other stuff and all the while was still doing stand-up comedy, which is what most people knew. Um, but I was, tr- I was trying to do acting things. And at some point I just, you know, it was, it was always fun for me. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people I know that I had worked with went on and did really, really big things. I never got anything really big. Um, I mean, I had a couple roles in movies that just those particular, all those scenes got cut, which I like to think wasn't related to me. Um, so <laughs> Um, but I, but I enjoyed it. It, it, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. So I do understand a lot of what it takes to film as far as, you know, I, I remember being on, um, uh, pier 39 in San Francisco and we're literally shooting from 12 midnight till four in the morning on one scene, freezing our ass off. And, and, and you think that there's, but there's a lot of waiting around. So I have appreciation for actors that can sit there and you know, they'll film like three lines, like, okay, we're going to reset cameras. And then they got 45 minutes to wait till everything's reset and they got to pick right back up where they were. Um, so I really, you know, that's why I think I'm such a film geek as far as watching these people and really appreciating the roles that are good. Even if I don't like the film as far as the script, but I mean, you know, the acting, I mean, when you can zoom in on somebody, they can't hide. Stage is very different. I did stage before I ever did film stuff and stage, you can get away with, you know, losing attention and nobody can tell from the audience. Cause you know, you're too far away camera's right there in your face there's there's people literally six feet away from you an entire crew and a mic that's just out of room and stuff like that and to maintain that focus and deliver the line so when you get somebody like you know Pitt and Clooney with that chemistry you know we think we're just watching them and stuff like that but there's a whole crew around them and they still have to do that and they probably had to do that scene 20 times you know over and over and over again to get the right one and then you start getting you know more fatigued and now you're getting tired and you're still supposed to maintain that energy. And I think that's what's great about this film is that they all had fun off camera, as you pointed out in the beginning of the segment or in the beginning of the show, Bear. And that helped probably maintain their energy to keep having these great scenes with these high energy scenes over and over again through, throughout, which I love it when, that, when they can pull that off. Well, yeah, very famously, the, the, the whole explaining of the heist scene when they're all in Ruben's house and he's going through it, you know, Clooney's playing game show host and talking about the whole thing. They shot that many, many times to get the facial reactions and the, and the couple of one-liners that are tossed by the actors in it. But Clooney had to perform his role over and over again, repeatedly. And it, it was, you know, when you learn about that, it's insane that he had to do that so many times and he had to hit his mark every single time to get these individual reactions around the room. Cause it wasn't shot multi-cam, it was shot single cam. This wasn't a sitcom. Um, so you couldn't just like, you know, 
trade-off camera shots and everything. So it was it was really great. Think, think about the think about the actors that are in the scene that this isn't their moment. Yet they have to be a hundred percent focused every time that shot's being done over and over again and not lose focus, not check out mentally, not be thinking of a grocery list or what their next film is or what their agent is doing. You know, I mean, so that it's incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, it, it takes a stellar cast to pull that off when you start talking so many people in the room at the same time. Absolutely. So Fred Rui actually has an IMDB page for those of people who are curious. Uh, Do I? Yeah. Uh, and, oh. uh, unless this is another Fred Rui of uh, the, the one credit that they've got listed for you is the, the film action. Oh, and okay. Big, the big time director is the role. 2010. Yeah. That's, yeah. Is that you? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've never seen the film. Tell us a little bit about it. It was actually, they were going for the Guinness book of world records. So they brought in people that had improv experience because they didn't have the time. So the shoot was supposed to go within 72 hours or something like that, full feature. And so they brought in a bunch of people with improv experience that they loosely gave you what you're supposed to talk about, but you largely made up pretty much all of the lines. Um, almost oh, like wow. best of show type, type thing where you brought in people that had either comedy background or improv background. And so, yeah, so the, the premise of the film was it was someone gets onto the set to shoot people that are making a film. And so I play, I play the director of the film. I'm going to have to, man, we're going to figure out how to stream this or something, man, uh, at some point, man, cool stuff. Good stuff. Might be on prime. Apparently I'm looking, I'm looking. At I don't now. know. I have no I, idea. I will, totally, I will totally buy this just to see the. the I'm afraid to watch it. I'm afraid to watch it. <laughs> Well, cool stuff there. So, I mean, back to the original point here. So what's the favorite snack, gentlemen, out of everything that uh, Brad Pitt eats? Is it is it the shrimp cocktail, Fred? What, what, what's the favorite snack? Uh, for me, it's the shrimp cocktail. I'm the same. I, it was between the nachos and the shrimp cocktail for me. But Nachos is strong. Nachos yeah. is strong. Sam? Yeah. For me, it's also the shrimp cocktail. It's just so out of place because they're like, they're tailing. Benedict, while this is all going on. So are they implying that he's just walking around eating shrimp cocktail this whole time? <laughs> shrimp cocktail tails. Yeah. yeah. With tails. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nuts. Just good stuff. So uh, a couple other kind of like to kind of debate, discuss things. We've kind of brought up some of the, uh, maybe we'll have some more hot takes during this. So this, so this movie is 20 years old. We've said this several times, obviously we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Ocean's 11 here. Um, looking back, We've all rewatched it very recently, um, in my case, several times. Uh, I don't know how many times you guys uh, saw it. Um, I know that uh, Fred went out and bought the, bought, the, bought the DVDs for it to do some research or, or pulled them out of storage. I'm not sure which. Um, but uh, does this movie age well? Is this movie still, does this movie feel like 20 years old? Does it age well? Uh, Fred, your thoughts, 2021, looking back 20 years later at this film, does this film, does this still film, does this film hold up for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think it does. I mean, I, I think when you talk about a con and you talk about casinos, there's nothing really dating the film, uh, with the exception of the cell phone, maybe he slips into her pocket or something like that. Um, there's not a whole lot that really dates the film poorly. Um, you know, I've gone back and rewatched a lot of films back 20 years ago that are definitely dated. They weren't as good as I thought they were and things like that. Um, but, you know, when you have a solid cast 
having fun with good dialogue, I think that stands the test of time. Yeah, the cell phones, particularly uh, the one line that is the worst of, you know, in terms of about looking back 20 years later is when Julia Roberts says, I don't have a cell phone. Absolutely would not happen in this day and age. Right. Unless right. we're talking about hippies living in the desert or something like does not does not does not work. Uh, that's the only that's the only line in the whole film that does not work 20 years later um, for me. Um, but yeah, uh, Sam, you were so uh, we talked about this with Lord of the Rings, how well that held up over 20 years when we were on the show earlier this year. But Sam, how old were you when this film came out again? About 2001, I was four. You were four. <laughs> I told you we were going to feel old later here, Fred. So <laughs> so does it hold up to how your four-year-old felt that it looked at the time? Uh, <laughs> but I, I do think it holds up extremely well. I mean, there's nothing that really dates it besides, like you said, the one line where she says, I don't have a cell phone. Um, but that's really it. I mean, even the phone that he slips in her pocket, I mean, you could do that today with a burner phone. Yeah, you yeah. you would, yeah, and you accept uh, that because even even today, if it was filmed today, and he slipped a small phone in like that, you would accept that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, only the antenna would probably be the one thing you probably wouldn't, and nobody would right. think anything of it. Yeah, but besides that, I I love the con movies. You know, if you go back and you watch like The Stain or something like that, I think to me personally, movies about a con like this just age extremely well because they're fun. And you could just keep rewatching them. And they're like, man, I enjoyed this movie this time as much as I did the last time I watched it or the first time I watched it. It was, it was it's just a fun film that ages really well. So mm-hmm. I saved this point from an earlier discussion when we talked about this being the greatest remake or not. So one of a, a film that comes to mind that I thought was way better than the original was the the modern redo of the Italian job with Mark Wahlberg. And looking back at that film by comparison, which is made around this time, actually a little bit later, does not age as well as this film. Uh, the technology is very, very mid 2000s, uh, uh, particularly with cell phones and other components and everything like that, where you're just like, uh, that, you know, I mean, I enjoy it still because I was around during that era and I understand it. But if I was like Sam's age or younger, I wouldn't like that film at all, or I wouldn't enjoy it as much, or I would look at that as more almost classic cinema style. Uh, this aim that I feel, I feel like this film just, just ages really well. And it, like, I think we'll be enjoying this movie 20 years from now when we're taught, you know, when we're at the 40th anniversary of this film, I think we'll still be watching it and be like, yeah, this is, this is still good. It, it, it obviously technology will definitely have surpassed it and everything like that. But, uh, but I think everything about it, even like the security stuff, uh, and and how they they beat the security cams and and uh, things like that I think are are really are really good are really good stuff and they really mm-hmm. hold up. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to say this we were talking about characters earlier, but I really wanted to go into a little bit more into Terry Benedict's character. Right, he's he represents this evilness. He represents obviously he's the he's he's supposed to be the, he's the villain of the film and everything. But I think this is an important question. Looking back at it, do you hate Terry Benedict? Do you hate the character Terry Benedict? Is there anything in here that is just so vile that you're just like, God, I hate him. I'm so glad that the criminal, the real criminals of this film triumph. 
I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Sam, you're, you're, you're up first on this one. I'm going to say no. It, the way he's shot and it makes him so menacing and pure evil makes you want to hate him. But if you really go into like, who is Terry Benedict? I mean, the reason he's the targeted villain is just because he's dating a woman. Right. And he treats her well and he's not a con man and he's a successful businessman. How do you hate a guy for that? Like, does he like show an extreme lack of emotion and, you know, is going to rip your life apart if you wrong him? Yeah. But it's hard to just hate him off the bat because all he's doing to wrong these guys is, you know, he beat Ruben out in business and he's dating Tess. Yeah. He doesn't do anything wrong. No. Like, so I guess, you know, I, I mean, illegal actions, uh, you know, having hire, firing someone to beat up Danny Ocean, I guess that's 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 not legal. <laughs> you can't do that. Um, you shouldn't do that. Uh, there's really not anything that he does that's like but wrong. So for Fred, you, what about you? I mean, do you do you hate no, the same, character? No, same. No, I don't. I, I, I think that there's not enough of a backstory of him, him you know, repeated wrongdoing over and over again where you get a real revenge moment and a revenge reason for why they go after him um they try to outline it a little bit with ruben but it, it comes off weak and, and sam pointed out perfectly as far as somebody that just got beat out in business um so no i i, I don't think you don't have that you, even when he loses at the end you don't get that victorious hey the big bully lost he got what he was due and all that other stuff you just felt that he got outsmarted by another colleague, but not necessarily that he was evil that way. Even yeah. the moment where they try to go where he would, you know, hey, he'll give up jet, you know, tests for for the money. I mean, it's a business thing right there. And for all, you know, you don't know that you don't even necessarily believe that he just wants the money back. Then he'll figure he'll patch it up with tests later type thing. So, you know, I, I never get that. He, that he's that he's evil in there. Yeah, it's it's the one big. It's the one big accepted thing throughout the film that I thought was really well. They, they, they shot him incredibly well. They shot him in a way to where we we accept and understand that he is the villain. But they're looking back again, watching this on the rewatch several dozen times as I've had. There's nothing. He doesn't do anything wrong. He, like he's there's nothing. There's not. He's a business owner. He makes he's just running decisions. casinos. Yeah. <laughs> and he's he's got a callous personality. That's that's his, yeah. that's his folly. Yeah. Like, right. You know, like. He likes money. Like that's, that's, that's it. And it's, 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 it's interesting how we, he becomes this, this hated guy. And even throughout the other films, like he's, he, especially in 12, right. He, he's the reason why they're in the, 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 the pickle that they're in, but even then he's not the, the most hated guy in the film really. And in 13, he kind of almost redeems himself comic, com, you know, almost to a, you know, in a comic effort, which is interesting. Well, so yeah, Terry Benedict, uh, an interesting character as a villain and everything. Uh, here's my next. Here, go ahead, Tim. It's it's funny you bring up thirteen too because I feel like you hate Al Pacino's character in that movie. Oh, a hundred percent, right? He he is. I feel like he is what Terry Benedict was supposed to be, right? In a way, mm-hmm. like he's just an like yeah, Al Al, Al Pacino, but even Al Pacino's character. He's just a ruthless business guy, right? I mean, he doesn't really do anything illegal, necessarily. You know, no, he manipulates. Just a huge asshole. I'm just a huge asshole. But yeah, you, you, you hate. I hate Al Pacino. I hate Willie Bank more than I do Terry Benedict. Absolutely, hundred um, percent. 
So, uh, so we talk about this, this dynamic of, of, of tests being this, this in the middle of all this and everything and, and winning tests back and everything like that. So here's an interesting question. Does tests just have terrible taste in men? She, she's with Danny. She divorces a con man and then she goes and, you know, hooks up with the antithesis, as Fred pointed out earlier, the antithesis of that, someone who's stable and a business person who's not going to, you know, not going to lie to her necessarily. He's just not going to show her any affection whatsoever, apparently. So, I mean, but I mean, does Tess have terrible taste in men? Fred, your thoughts? I mean, I don't know. There's not enough. There's not enough, really. I mean, we, we know two of her choices. So, um, you know, there's just not enough there to go off of. And I don't really know to care anymore, to be honest with you. I don't, you know, to, <laughs> to know more, I'd have to have her in the movie more. And, and, and I just, it was the least interesting part of the entire movie for me. So um, I don't care. <laughs> she answers the next question, Sam, but we'll go into that in just two seconds. Sam, your thoughts on Tess having I mean, good taste in men or not? I mean, he's right that, you know, Statistically, the sample size is small. I mean, it's just these two guys that are the antithesis of each other. But if you just operate off the two guys, yeah, it's bad. I yeah. mean, one guy who's a con man who clearly lied to her multiple times, and that's why he went to prison, and that's why she divorced him. And then you have another guy who will show her zero affection and never does it through the whole film, public or private. Like, he doesn't want people to know they're dating, but they have dinner every night together. Like, <laughs> I think people know. She, she, <laughs> she eats, she eats well in the film. Uh, I guess we could say that. You know, yeah. So what so, her, her and Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah. Her and Brad Pitt eat great. That's for sure. So, uh, so I, Fred already answered this question earlier. So, uh, but I'll just want I'll let him clarify real quick. So is, is, is Tess in the movie too much? No. Seven minutes of airtime. No. I think it's, I think that's, that's, it's fair. It establishes what they're trying to go for, but I don't need to see her anymore. And I didn't really, you probably shouldn't have seen her any less either. Sam, are you in the same camp? What do you think? Do you, would you, do you want more of Julia Roberts or less or the no, same? I'm in the same camp. I'm in the same camp. Um, I think she's there. She establishes what Danny Ocean is there for, but that that's plenty. That's all I need to see from that film. If there was, Maybe a different actress that was kind of more, you know, boom, walking down the stairs during like the shrimp cocktail scene that like captivated your attention, maybe more. But I think she's in no, there. I, I, I will like say, though, you know, for her seven minutes, she establishes her, her relationship with with both of them very well in all of seven minutes. And, you know, so so, I mean, you didn't need any more because there was going to be no depth to what that was. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, man, for a lady, for an actress so accomplished at that time in her career, making 20 million a picture, the whole $20 bit with Clooney sending her the script and everything. That's, that's a funny aside, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a, it's really just kind of almost a throwaway role. It's interesting in her, in her career. It's almost a, this interesting throwaway. Um, she has such a bigger part in 12. Which we've already, which we've already established, is like the lesser of the three, um, which is interesting. But um, all right, so here's a fun segment that I thought was—it's—I always like to do this with films. 
in in general. We've kind of we've kind of skated around the edges of several uh, several opportunities here. So, um, Fred, I'll leave it open to you here. Uh, biggest nitpick in the film. Um, what what are your couple nominees or what's your what's your pick? The biggest nitpick that you saw as you kind of on the rewatch here. I mean, there's two. I mean, one for me is the fact that the whole um, you know the EMT to knock out the power and stuff like that. Um, you know, he establishes that it, it knocks out the Wi-Fi and, 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 and things like that. And it's, and it's independent. It really what it is, it's independent, non-hardwired items. Um, that doesn't knock out the hardwired aspect of it. Like, you know, in, in, you know, in, in, in the first, in the original, they knock out a tower, which supplies the power that goes to all the casinos. Um, in theory, what he blew off would not take, wouldn't wipe out all the lights. It wouldn't wipe out generators that kick on and it wouldn't wipe out a whole lot of other things that go along with that. Um, but actually my probably big, biggest one is, 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 is kind of stupid, but it's the sheer weight of the money that they were stealing and they had to carry out, which to carry out that much in bills is over yes. 300 pounds per person that they would have to carry. And they're going out with a couple duffel bags, like it's nothing. So um, and that happens by the way, that is a classic, mistake in a lot of films when they talk about the amount of money and you think you know whether they're taking gold or dollars or whatever the amount of weight amount of bulk you know they all of a sudden have like a couple duffel bags of what's supposed to be you know millions and millions and millions of dollars um you know you're talking 22 pounds per million uh it's 300 pounds per person to carry out of there not happening i i there's one film that makes fun about the money capacity thing and it's the it's the in dodgeball when ben stiller is bribing vince vaughn and he's like ten thousand dollars or whatever it is he opens a briefcase and it's this little stack of money he's like it looks a lot more it looks a lot less in real life but the weight is still the same <laughs> it but no it, you're you're absolutely right fred i the amount of money is one of those big nitpicks for me too like it and it's it exists in every film in every film where there's there's money involved gold involved I mean, you, especially with gold, you would need, you know, tractor trailers to haul off stuff and, and people are carrying stuff around in briefcases and duffel bags. And it's just like, come on, man, come on. Um, I do. Have, I do have one other nitpick, though. And, and, and now, that, now that you bring it up um, and, and it's really it has to do with the whole heist. Why did Yen not just bring in the tiny little explosive things with him in the cart? They make this huge thing where it's got to be four little pieces in this briefcase and a whole scenario that, you know, has Reiner getting it there to get it into the vault and stuff like that. Well, Yen's already in the vault. So why did he not just have those four little pieces in him in the container all along? And you could have alleviated all that other stuff. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Uh, my favorite thing is too, is, is, is Andy Garcia. Terry Benedict's character's inspection of the briefcase when he open has him open the briefcase and he does this little, you know, um, movement with his hand to kind of, you know, frisk it, frisk the briefcase. It's just, it's just folly. It, it's just obnoxious. Um, Sam, any nit nitpicks for you? Yeah, there's several. One is, you know, when Rusty's on the phone with Terry at the end, and he tells him, I'm staying in your hotel. It's like, the guy's got cameras everywhere. You don't think he's going to figure out who you are, who's with you, and who all is involved in this heist if you're telling him this information? And then, you know, like, that Danny Ocean's involved, that maybe Frank's involved. 
Like they don't cover their tracks well at all. Like they do everything else perfectly, but they set themselves up for Ocean's 12 because clearly you're going to get caught. Right. Um, and it, it's like, guys, you could have stayed somewhere else. <laughs> you could have done other things to prevent this from happening. Um, well, even the warehouse too, where they rebuild the vault is like two blocks away from the casino and stuff. And they drive the big SWAT truck into it later on. It's like, come on, man, someone's going to catch you. Um, what are those things? So here's, here's one of mine. Um, I don't know. And Sam, if we didn't get to all yours, you can certainly add them here in a second, but one of mine is the, so, so uh, we, we mentioned about Terry Benedict's, Benedict's only crime is having George Clooney's character beat up. Well, you know, as we, as we know in the film, the, the bouncer's obviously in on it. Um, and, but I would foresee this in real life time. It's about 40 minutes from when he goes into the room to the way until when the heist is over and he's back in the room. So for 40 minutes or so, this guy's got to sell the fact that he's beating the shit out of George Clooney. And other than being out of breath, his shirt being untucked and a, one little blood spatter on his cheek, George Clooney's pretty much immaculate at the end of that. Like I, that, that was the toughest sell for me throughout the whole film. Like I, like I, if I'm Terry Benedict and I'm looking at him, I'm like, okay, I I'm right about this. My hunch is right. He's, he's, he's part of this. Like I'm, I'm shaking this out of this guy right now. Like that's that, that part of me is just, uh, that part of me was just completely lost. I was just like, I didn't believe it at all. Well, apparently when you go to prison, when he goes to prison at the end because of the parole, they also clean your shirt for you because the blood on his shirt from that incident there and the, <laughs> and the beating is gone when he gets back out of prison yeah. with his with his clean start shirt again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah my, my other one is kind of off that, like, you know, that final scene with Tessa and Terry together when she says, you know, Terry, there's always someone watching in your casinos. I mean, that sells out Danny immediately. Because he's the only person that would go in and purposely to get tests. Like, you know who's involved immediately. So you know who you're going to target. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then they're still following him at the end, too. Like, I'm just like, so, you know, I know that leads us into 12. But, I mean, he 12 starts with the fact that he knows, he finds out the involvement of who's involved because it was, it was disclosed to him, but like, I, I think Terry Benedict finds out and knows this whole time and he does it himself. I don't, I mean, you need it to kind of move 12 along, which again, makes it the forgettable film, right? It's like the immediate, that film starts off with like a huge nitpick already. So it's like already yeah. makes discounts 12 to this level. It's interesting, but yeah, yeah my, nitpick, uh, my nitpick with 12 is 12. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Last couple things here before uh, closing thoughts in our last curveball segment here. But I mean, we also have we have to boil this down to uh, our, our favorite scene, gentlemen. Uh, so, Fred, again, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, on Yeah, it's great, man. Anytime um, you want to talk movies, I'm in. Fantastic. Fantastic. We'll we'll uh, we'll definitely have to have you. Sam. Uh, Sam has agreed to be part of these uh, as we kind of move forward with doing a couple of year and and uh, 
you know, at some point we'll get to a film perhaps that was actually around during his, he actually maybe saw in theaters, you know, he didn't see it on, in the rewatch <laughs> on the TV yeah. somewhere. Ma- Matrix four is coming out in December. That's right. There you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so favorite scene, guys. Favorite scene. So, Fred, what was uh, what was your favorite scene of of the film? It's it's hard to pick a favorite scene from the standpoint of like there's so much good dialogue from between Clooney and Pitt that I I think are great. You opened with one of the one of the best ones. The other one being outside the warehouse when he's calling her on that it's about Tess. Um, but actually, my favorite scene probably if I have to pick one moment that's just and I don't even think it's thirty seconds long. It's when they destroyed the old casino and bashers in his hotel room watching the destruction of the casino on TV, but behind them out the window, the casino's coming down. And so it's he could just turn around and watch it live, but he's watching the casino destruction on his little TV. I just love that moment that just he's he's that, that that's what he's watching, and and all behind him is all the stuff happening in real time. It's like every football game played at Cowboy Stadium. The, the game's actually going on below, but everyone's watching the massive yeah. fucking TV above. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Sam, favorite scene? So I think you and I have one of the favorites, uh, but I'm going to let you do that one. Uh, but my other one is kind of, you know, that, that point in the con movie that everything comes together and you, as the viewer for the first time, see it all come together where you see, you know, Ocean and Rusty working together and they're keeping the team in the dark, specifically Matt Damon in the dark about mm-hmm. what is happening. Uh, and it all comes together at the end. It's just so satisfying to watch. Um, but I'm going to let you cover what is probably my favorite scene in the whole film uh, with Frank and Linus. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to end with. So the couple of nominees that I have for favorite scenes, I think the the one of the opening scenes where we meet Rusty for the first time the the poker scene with the teen uh the teeny boppers uh um i think it's hilarious because again 2001 this was like the apex of all of these careers around this table you know topher grace is still relevant today but he was never bigger than that 70s show joshua jackson's dawson's creek barry watson seventh heaven holly marine combs in, in charmed and Shane West, who was an ER, but he was in a couple of teen, teen flicks and stuff like that. Um, and it's, it's, it's hilarious because they're all making fun of e- their, themselves, right? And um, it's the, the whole, I mean, the whole dialogue is hilarious. Like Brad Pitt teaching these people how to play cards and, you know, telling Joshua Jackson, do you always deal to your left, always deal to your left and yeah, everything. Yeah. It's it, it it's it's so ridiculous and but at the same time it's 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 oddly believable um you know Topher Grace you know playing this this ho- you know this Hollywood star and when they come out of even they come out of that scene and they get trounced by the paparazzi and Brad Pitt and George Clooney just kind of walk away scot-free it's just yeah. it's, it's fun <laughs> uh, how they make fun of themselves the um this has been stolen so many times over the years. And I think it, you know, I mentioned the film early on, but the gang roundup, which kind of made, was made famous in the original Magnificent Seven of going around and and recruiting all these people, right. To, to take part in this, this greater, this greater project or whatever. Um, It's, it's, it's one of my favorite scenes in this film, just because you learn the many, we talked a lot about backstories throughout this discussion. And we learn a little bit about these people, 
every time they get picked and why they're picked and who they are and their character behind them and stuff like that. And uh, um, I, I mean, it's just, you know, it's one of the great Hollywood um, tropes that kind of just has been stolen more and more as through the last 20 years. Um, you know, in every, every heist film, every con film, you know, every ensemble film, you, 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 you get this gathering at every single film. It's great. It's like one of the best parts of each film that does this. I, I think it's really great, but yeah, uh, Sam, you, you, you took it. I think the, you know, we, we've, we've kind of left behind and, and even though I don't really like Matt Damon's character or Matt Damon's performance, um, it's really Bernie Mac who steals the show in his final, basically his final scene in the film, which is where he gets caught, uh, by the Nevada gaming commission play, you know, character played by, you know, Matt Damon and, and, uh, and the 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 faux racist bit, uh, which probably doesn't age well for 2021, but um, it it is so it is just so funny, um, and how Bernie Mac just plays it like so well, um, and uh, the, just the way he's chewing on his finger and just like his internal anger, and then how he goes after the guy for you know, I mean they could have easily dropped a worse racial racial slur in this film, but that's the whole thing is this film is relatively clean, right? There's not really, there's not really too many profanities thrown out. I mean, the F bomb has dropped the permitted PG 13 twice rule. You know, Yen says it in the vault. Ruben says it at the lunch table and that's it. Uh, And it's, you know, there really isn't much profanity laced throughout it. And, and, you know, the fact that he says, colored and cracker that gets thrown out and they still have it i i i absolutely love that that back and forth the three of them and how they how linus ultimately gets the codes which you know gets them that's how he, that's all the thing any any thoughts on i guess any thoughts on any of those scenes uh fred no they're 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 all good i mean they're all the, the opening poker scene i think a lot of people miss or wouldn't know that those you know those were the people that were there um, that was also a time when there was legitimately actors trying to do the poker stuff. Molly's game is based on a lot of that. Uh, you have rounders and some other stuff that touch on that slightly. Um, so yeah, I, I, I thought that was a, a, a fun thing. And it was a fun thing to establish Brad Pitt's character that he was, that's what he was doing. He was just like teaching these kids and he never really understood his hustle other than they were paying him. But it was great when, when, when Topher Grace is talking about, you know, I, I think I can get this as a tax deduction. You know, my, my account says if I write this off as a check or, you know, and, and Brad Pitt saying that for cash, we could, we could just continue with the cash we, thing. We you know? I mean, cash. Yeah. I mean, so that, the, the, those are all really great moments. And, and, and the Bernie Mac thing just as settled as he is in the chair and he's just like cracker, you know, and just, I mean, just it, 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 it's played, it's played very well. <laughs> you heard, you heard what well. I said. <laughs> yeah. You, you heard a black man said. can't earn a decent wage in the state. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that that like right right after the poker scene where the guy's like, Oh, how's it going? He's like, longest hour of my life. Like, what? I'm running away with your wife. <laughs> yeah. I I could easily I could easily regurgitate this film line for line from the very beginning. I, I think that it's just delivered so well. The parts are played so wonderfully. Um, the whole thing is a rewatch scene for me. I, I just I absolutely love it. Uh my wife has been asking me like the last couple of weeks. She's like, why are you watching this so much? I'm like, oh, I'm doing a show on it. And she's like, oh, that explains it. She's like, well, you watched it a lot before. 
she's like i i mean she's easily seen it as many times not as many times as i have but quite a few because i've watched it so many times over our over our marriage um and uh, she knows how much i love it and everything so so speaking of love it so um i i as i've commonly recruited uh to people to do this to do this bit with me i i will post something on social media and engage interaction and the whole point is to get cigar industry folk involved with this and that's sam that's how you and i uh came to be part of this and you 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 joined me on the gladiator one last year and then have since agreed to to be a part of this uh kind of going forward a couple times a year so it's always really great to, to have someone join us we had justin andrews join us before um and uh trip waldrop joined us for uh the lord of the rings and so fred uh joining us now for oceans 11. so the uh, the uh, the question remains of the day gentlemen uh where does oceans 11 the 2021 uh excuse me not 21 2001 release where does it fall on your all-time list and you don't have to give me a precise number but is it a top five top 10 top 25 top 50 top 100 fred where is oceans 11 fall on your all-time list you're the you're the probably arguably the biggest film guru of the trio here today what what do you think 47 oh you have a precise number <laughs> yeah i have a, I have a list <laughs> 47 awesome uh what makes it a top 50 film for you um, you know, again, con, a, a, any con movie has a ch has a chance, and just solid, memorable characters, memorable lines, um, and it's also one of those films that slips in under the. Uh, and Sam actually alluded to it earlier. You know, it's like it, you know what film is you're you know scrolling through TV and you're you know what you know it's late and you're like yeah I, you know I don't you know, I'm not vested to start up a whole new movie. You know what's going on? Pro oh, it's already in progress. Oh, okay, I'm I'm, I'm just gonna well, I'm just gonna yeah. stop here and finish my pizza rolls and you know watch the rest of this movie. It's I, it's it's absolutely one of those films that's been on TNT, Bravo, like everything, like over the last 20 years. And like, no matter where it is in the film, I, I will watch it. It's like this in Con Air, like I'm dropping everything and I'm just fucking committing myself to watch. I'm watching the rest of the film. I'm just doing it. I'm doing it. No hand, hands down. So uh, Sam, where it is a top top five, top 10, top 25, top 100. Where is it? You know, I don't have a number <laughs> like Fred. <laughs> no, it, it's probably top 25 just sheer rewatchability like some movies in in my top 10 i'm not going to just be like oh man i'm going to finish that movie even though it's already started but this movie it's like yeah it's i could pick it it's going to be a great flick anytime i want to watch it wherever i pick it up in the film it's just a great movie. So I, I would say top 25. I need to come out and write a list of where, where I rank movies, but I haven't gotten around to do that yet. <laughs> it's probably top 30 for me too, just on true or watchability and how many times I've actually seen it. Uh, absolutely. But we, we mentioned, uh, we've mentioned our partners a little bit and the amount of times that we've probably rewatched films and we've probably annoyed our partners to a certain extent at some point with some of these. Um, but, uh, from what you can tell, uh, is this a film that, uh, that uh that your wives have enjoyed yeah yeah does she watch a lot does does your wife watch a lot with you fred or is this something yes. you do oh, okay so you no, something you guys share together yeah okay nice. so i know you've i know you've you've made your wife sit down and watch some of these films so <laughs> we're, we're, what did she think of this when you sat down and watched it with her so for me i actually got to show her this movie for the first time she'd never seen it before which i was like how the hell have you never seen oceans 11 but she loved it. She loved this movie. 
Um, she sat down and rewatched it with me yesterday in preparation while I was, you know, taking some notes and getting ready for this. Um, but she loved it. I mean, I still can't get her to watch, you know, the original Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, but <laughs> she, she very much enjoyed Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> well, we'll have to work on her for that. So, uh, so uh, uh, gentlemen, before the curveball segment for our last, uh, our last question, any final thoughts that you want to share on Ocean's Eleven? I think we covered it pretty well. I don't know how we haven't covered everything at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, the movie is uh, the movie is an hour and 56 minutes long. We have gone well over that in just discussing it. So I think we, I think we've done a good job, but Sam, any, any, I don't want to steal anything from you. Any thoughts that you wanted to share? No, I don't think so. And you said it was an hour and 56 minutes. They packed a lot into this hour and 56 minutes. They sure did. They sure uh, did. And they did a great job doing it where it doesn't feel long. Um, and it's just a great flick. I'm glad we got to do it on the show. I mean, we could have done an hour and 48 if we'd have cut out tasks, but I'm willing to go with it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, at least we learned about the heist in the first seven minutes, as opposed to 50 minutes in with the original. I'll just say that. That's so. true. That's very true. <laughs> so last question of the night. And before that, just want to thank you gentlemen one last time. Thank you so much. This is a lot of time that you dedicated on a Sunday night. Uh, Fred, like you said, well past your bedtime. Thank you so much for making some time to sit down with me, have a conversation. Absolutely. Come on this my is show great. For the first time. This is great. Good stuff. So our last segment, of course, is sponsored by Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Fastballs or curveballs, it doesn't matter since the company's inception. Steve Sock has been knocking them out of the park six consecutive years in the consensus top three. Yep. I looked it up and even got fact-checked by that by Mr. William Cooper, a Cigar Coop primetime specialist. So, uh, so gentlemen, very straightforward. We've been talking about this film this whole time. Uh, here's the curveball segment. Um, what do you think of George Clooney playing Rusty Ryan and Brad Pitt playing as Danny Ocean? Could it have been done? Yes or no, and reasons why. Fred? Um, I think that Pitt could have played Danny Ocean. I don't think Clooney could have played Pitt's role. Any reasons why? Um, I just think that, that you know, I, I think it would have been easier for Pitt to go up to the guy in charge. And, and you know, he kind of commands that air anyway as, as a person. And as a screen icon, and obviously we didn't know that then, but looking at what his capabilities were, obviously going forward, um, I think it would have been more difficult for Clooney to dumb down that level of sophistication that Brad Pitt did so well. I mean, if you try to picture Clooney, you know, eating and 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 doing some of those things and calling somebody else, I just don't think it. it, it I don't think the round the the role holds up as well. But I think if you picture Brad Pitt in Clooney's role. You can go, yeah, I, I could see him. Obviously, he's going to change how he acts, but I could see Pitt being the guy putting it all together, you know, and, and you know, you, you could see him being the mastermind on that. I just don't see Clooney dropping down, uh, and I don't mean that in a, in, a, in, a, in a credit way, but I just don't see him dropping down to Pitt's role and bringing the same, same you know, magnitude to it that, that Pitt did in that role. Sam? No, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I don't like either person. I don't like them switching roles at all. Yeah. I think the subtlety of Pitt in his role is phenomenal. And, I, and I, I think you're right. I don't think Clooney pulls it off in this subtle way being not the lead character. Uh, but I, I also don't love Pitt in that role. I mean, at this time in, in Brad Pitt's career, he, he's used to being, you know, the star of the movie. 
but I don't think he's the right fit for Danny Ocean. Yeah. Um, so I don't like them switching roles. Could they have done it and it have been an enjoyable film? Sure. But I think this way it was perfect. I, I was firmly against it. I think Fred kind of convinced me a little bit to, that Pitt could, Pitt could play it up, but I, I'm, yeah, I'm with you, Sam. I, I, I think it's perfect the way it is. And, uh, but uh, not that you were saying anything to the contrary of that, Fred, but, um, but yeah, I think you almost kind of, almost kind of convinced me there on that last one. Um, well, and, and part of it is I look at, I think that, I think Pitt's roles opposite Tess might've come off better than Clooney's roles opposite Tess, but that's I fair. don't know. That's fair. Well, uh, good, good take there. So, um, well, gentlemen, I thank you once again for all of your time this evening. I think, uh, uh, Sam, I think uh, Fred has challenged us uh, when we do two towers next year uh, that uh, we got to come in costume next time. So I, 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 think, <laughs> I, think, I, was, I was already trying to brainstorm ideas, but I don't know what I'm going to come up with. I, I'm not sure I could pull off like Legolas and I sure as hell though. While I have the beard for it, I'm not really too fond of playing the uh, the dwarf. So uh, just we'll just come to... in as a giant tree, own it. Just there own we go. It. There we go. <laughs> awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you once again. Uh, thanks to our audience for staying up late with us. We went well over what the mil what the film actually did on screen. An hour and fifty six minutes of screen time. We did well over that. Dis uh, dissecting it, describing it, debating it. Uh, what an awesome film this is. Uh, top fifty for all of us. Uh, a film that we really enjoy. I love on the rewatch. Check it out. Uh, you can stream it anywhere on any streaming, probably place that you can find. It's always on Netflix or Prime or something like that. So check it out. A great film and uh, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julie Roberts, and the ensemble cast that we went into earlier. So some really great, really great performances. For all our audience out there, check out our YouTube page, Alosu Fumar, as well as our Facebook page as well. You can download us on wherever you listen to podcasts as well. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure you hit the subscribe button. Uh, leave a review for me as well. If you are a subscriber, do me a favor, hit unsubscribe, but don't forget to resubscribe. That really helps my numbers so that I can, find, I can get great guests like the two gentlemen um, in front of me tonight. So thanks a lot to, uh, Mr. Fred Rui, Sam Spencer, for everyone out there. This was our 192nd take live from the Alec Bradley Lone Star Studios of Euless, Texas. I'm your host, Barry Duplessis as always. And guess what, everybody? We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.